What's up, guys? Welcome to Shite and Sound. It's a YouTube channel with the best and worst film field. Here, doing the second part of a two-part episode. My name is Yutha Shite. And I'm Finn Sound Nicholas. Sound. And we are here doing the full restoration of Eric Stroheim's greed and the full restoration of Zack Snyder's Justice Justice League. The Snyder Cut, the Weed, and Cut, the Snyder Cut. So Finn. Parts one through six plus epilogue. And there's a prologue as well. It just isn't given a a title. That isn't just Justice League. So it technically goes Justice League, part one, part two. Then I believe part three. After that is part four. Part five. Part six. And then there's the epilogue. Yeah, where you get to see Jared Leto do his shitty fucking Joker garbage. I, okay, let's jump way ahead to the end of the podcast. Yeah, let, let, let's, let's jump four hours ahead. Um, because uh, in another podcast, we talked about how much better Justice League would be if it was full of people just reacting logically to Jared Leto's Joker and just being like, oh, come on, <laughs> really? You're doing this? Uh, and I think that Ben Affleck's performance in that scene even though they were were not in the same place yep which um, you can tell uh i think if you know you can tell mm. there is a real sense that flick affleck's performance yeah. of like this fucking guy to the point where, where he leaves the conversation he talks to someone else and they're like you happy you, you brought him mm. along and his response is like does it look like <laughs> it and you are just like it is kind of the film being like oh this Fucking dude, come on. Yeah, but like, as you said about the, the force kiss and sexual coercion in Blade Runner, if Zack Snyder knows that Jared Leto is bad as the Joker and that his whole thing is irritating, the best idea of that is just to not put him in the movie. I, at slash recast. But all, just like, we don't need to do the Joker again. We've had so, we've had so many Jokers recently, just lay off it for a while. But the material of that scene. Uh, this scene is a, a flash forward into the, the fifth film in the trilogy that Zack Snyder's Just Weed and Zack Snyder's Justice League, the Snyder Cut, the Weed and Cut, the Snyder Cut, forms the third part of. <laughs> like, the twist being that, like, uh, Batman has assembled a crazy, let's call them suicide squad, which has, like, Mirror from Acroman. Yeah, it's got Deathstroke. Uh, the Flash, a couple of other people, and also the Joker. I appreciate the idea that the film can go like in two films time that we're not going to make. Yeah. They'll probably be adapted as like black label comics by DC. Batman has to team up with the Joker to take down Superman. I'm like, I, I appreciate that as a narrative offer. Yeah. And how great would that scene have been if they were like, Oh, someone doing the Joker laugh. I can't believe it's Jared Leto and they can't. And it's Charlie's Theron in a purple suit. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, the podcast where two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. Maybe they share themes, plot, actors or director. We want to see if counterpointing these two films can bring out some new information or insights. On this episode we watched the four hour long cut of number 87 on the Shite and Sound list, Eric von Stroheim's Greed. Now almost 60% still images. Our second film this week is Zack Snyder's Justice League a film adaptation of one of those 19th century German paintings of gods killing each other.
it, it should be stressed. It was not Stroheim's vision that it be still images. No, but I was describing this movie to a friend of mine at a party last night. You, like it's watching the seven part reconstruction of Marco Polo, the the fourth ever Doctor Who. Mm, but I, I, no, because that's in color. Mm. That. Because they took color stills on set, a great expense, and when they were filming in early 1964. Well, there's there's color in this movie. They like, had to oh, hand paint it into the frames. Full, I'm talking about full color, not duochrome. Yeah, so I, I was describing this movie to, to oh, no, a No, there are there oh. are those colorized bits. Yeah, oddly colorized bits. Yeah, and there's also one bit that's just like some watercolor paintings for a while. You're right. I take it back. I'll never bring up Doctor Who again. Great in my life. <laughs> No, I, was, I was describing this movie to, to a friend of mine at a party last night, and I said, it's a four-hour-long silent film, most of it's still images, and he said, I think that's just a slideshow. Were you then like, I've got big news for you about how those images appear to move? Like, sure. But like, like yes, we all know that a film is just showing still images very fast. Yeah, unless it's a flash animation, then it's vector graphics. Yeah, except we don't talk about flash animation. I don't know. I think it's pretty flash. I think, like, <laughs> that difference is uh, I saw Earwig and The Witch, the latest Ghibli joint from old Miyazaki. No, nope, not, not that one. No. Yeah, it's their first CG film. They've made CG television serials. Also, they've used elements of CG in previous films. Yeah, but this is their... This, f- yes, it's all CG. Yeah, this is the first one where, you know, Goro saw Shark Tale and were like, this is the future. Yeah, it's the first one where Goro Miyazaki saw, like, a made-for-TV French CG animated series and said, I could do that. that yeah, that that is cruel to the film. The backgrounds and establishing shots, when you see them, you're like, this is beautiful. This is what Ghibli 3D looks like you know that is right, yeah. like that that lush detailed but idiosyncratic longing for the past that also judges it but the reason it looks so wrong and does not land is that the character designs are trying to look like ghibli character designs like those that specific kind of hyper exaggeration that goes beyond even uh, anime in general but because they don't animate every frame and it's all you know, they rig a puppet. Yeah. And then they say the arm goes from here to here. Like the distortions don't feel like a living, you know, when the the mandrake that runs the house grows giant. It's not an an animator drawing 12 frames a second. Yeah. It is, it is someone being stretched in Photoshop, essentially. Uh, and like that is the fundamental thing against it. And it just doesn't work. There's a lot in it that's nicer than you think. It's just not. It's better than Tales of Earthsea. So I guess what we're saying is all movies are slideshows, but the four-hour-long cut of Greed is more of a slideshow than most movies. Why hasn't there? Because obviously we live in a world where everything that's even faintly um, adjacent to film has been used as the premise for a kind of found footage-like film. There are so many films that are just like, what if it was just the screen capture from a computer for yeah. an hour? You know, the, what if it was a phone? Um, why is there a film that's just... What if pa- there was a Cloverfield? Yeah. Um, what if there was a co- Cloverfield paradox? Yep. Is there one that is a PowerPoint presentation? I don't believe so yet. That, I, I think it's your job to make it. I, I mean, you'd have to have the audio of the person presenting it. Mm. 
and we haven't oh there's that episode of inside number nine that's a dvd commentary which is good okay so yeah maybe but hello welcome to the podcast hey everyone thanks for listening this is episode, this is it may say somewhere in your podcatcher that this is episode 36 it's not this is episode 15b yeah because when we did our first episode on greed and justice league uh we uh like idiots said uh, when Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League comes out, we'll watch the four-hour-long cut of Greed and Zack Snyder's Justice League back-to-back and then do a podcast on that. And now that's happened and we've done it. Yeah, we also we deliberately watched a cut-down version of Greed because the four-hour reconstruction is by far and away the most commonly available. Mm. So we watched the Asphalt Jungle live edit with live school version that's up on Vimeo that I believe was just over two. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so Greed. 1924, drama, silent. Von Stroheim wrote and directed. Uh, it was originally eight hours long. Yeah, the first assembly was nine hours long. Then, then the first proper, yeah, then the first like proper like cut of a film was eight hours. It was 42 reels. Then the studio said, go fuck yourself. Uh, I, I would say, understandably. Sure. Then they like burnt most of that extra footage. I think that the key thing to understand about that edit situation is that Von Stroheim had been working at Universal yeah. uh, and had been making increasingly bigger and more epic and longer films. And Universal were like, bud, please, we just, we just want 90 minute to 120 minute long films that we can put before B movies, you know, to basically to sell seats. We yeah. don't need these three hour epics about how everyone is not a human, but an animal, <laughs> you know? And he was like, I'm sick of this. In 1923, Stroheim was working on a film called Merry Go Round. The lead role was written for him to play, but Universal forced him. Uh, Irving Tholberg specifically forced him to cast someone else and then fired him while shooting. Right. Like, during shooting, and he was replaced by Rupert Julian. Then he, he moved to MGM? Well, which was just then GP, which was Samuel Goldwyn's Goldwyn Pictures, but it is now MGM. Yeah. Um, and, and and they basically gave him like carte blanche to to do whatever he wanted, and then uh, he decided, okay, I'll I'll do whatever I want. Then and then uh, they realized they'd made a, a a horrible mistake when he uh, spent like six months filming this movie, went way over budget, shot something like eighty five hours of footage, uh, took everyone into the de- took everyone into Death Valley for two months. Yeah, where 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 cast and crew members at least one or two people every single day like passing out from exhaustion in the 50 degrees celsius sunlight uh, it's cra- cra- like like crazy shit um and, and like his sp- pitch specifically for this film was like i'm gonna mcteague which was then a big book yeah uh, written by a guy called frank norris um i'm gonna adapt this book as faithfully as possible we are going to go to the places described in this book we're going to shoot the whole thing on location. Yeah, yeah, which like was was not done at the time. It's no. like one of the first movies ever to be shot fully on location. Yeah, Thalberg was the person at Universal who had fired Stroheim. Right, and during editing on Greed, Goldwyn Pictures merged into MGM bringing Thalberg in right, charge. Right, yeah. So this was a situation yeah, where he was like... his name's in the credits on yeah. Greed, yeah. So Goldwyn was like, come make whatever you want. You'll be free of Irwin Thalberg. And then when he got to editing, was like, you'll never guess who it is, the man who laid, made your life hell. The first assembly was nine hours. The first cut was eight hours. 
GM were like, uh, okay, we asked for one film and you've given us two four-hour films to show across two nights. And he's like, okay, I'll cut it down into two three-hour films. Um, and, and they, they saw that version and were like, okay, can we get a shorter version? And he was like, you are pulling my arm. You're twisting my arm. You're yanking my man crank. <laughs> I, the thing, and uh, 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 he cut a four hour version, which, which uh, he was like, this is, this is, this is me cutting it to the bone. Um, uh, and eventually they were, uh, uh, Goldwyn pictures were like, now nah, we can still find 90 more minutes. Yeah. And they cut out basically two plots, two whole plots out of the film. Uh, and for a long time, that two and a half hour long version was the one that was seen and distributed. And then there was a restoration, which is what we watched, which tries to cobble back together from uh, remaining footage. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of use of onset publicity stills. Yeah. There's a lot of it where they'll just like have an intertitle of a quote from a book describing what happens for scenes where they don't have anything. There is one sequence where they just use some watercolor paintings of what a scene was supposed to look like. And from that, they created a four-hour cut of, of Greed. The beginning is much the same. We meet this guy. His name's McTeague. We never learn his first name. People just call him Mac. Who's, who's working down the mines, looking for gold. This is a black and white silent film, but all um, images of richness and power are colored gold. So you see gold glitters, but also like uh, McTeague is like, is like Anthony Soprano Jr. Um, in that he feels this incredible affinity with animals. Yeah. And, and so his like establishing character moment is that he finds this little bird, uh, which is gold like the gold and he picks it up delicately and and yeah, cares it, it, for it. it's on the like mine cart track and he's he's pushing his big cart full of shitty rocks and gold along he sees a sees a wounded bird on the, on the track and he picks it up and he's holding it very gently and trying to care for it I mean, and it, so like the thing that i noticed so much this time watching greed is that that i'm so used to silent films because of the resolution of their image the temporal resolution and the fact that most that i've seen are, are uh, 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 comedies or, or thrillers are based on big gestures. Like yeah. you're not following hands, you're following arms. But in this, like so much emphasis is put on, on his two big oven mitts of appendages, yeah. desperately trying not to crush this little bird, a beautiful and tender moment. Mm. And then he meets another guy pushing a mining cart who he gets into a bit of an argument with. Yeah, and this guy, uh, for seemingly no reason, just like slaps the bird out of McTeague's hand, seemingly obliterating the bird. <laughs> yeah, like, like, we don't see it again. Yeah, like in that video of that, of that baseball match, a, a pitcher was like going to like throw a fastball, and you just see him throw a ball, and then a like white shape comes in from the side of the screen and just bursts into feathers. <laughs> uh, I've never had a pet bird in my life. Mm. Um, I, I, I have. It'll not surprise you to find I had multiple pet cats in my life. There's a great close-up on McTeague's face. He's played by uh, he's played by an actor called Gibson Goland. This guy made like 65 films. This was yeah. his only starring role in a film. Yeah. Uh, uh, he has a character actor's face. Yeah. Imagine like John C. Riley is the lead of a Pixar film where he plays a puffer fish. Yeah. Uh, like a puffer fish made of ham, made of scrunched ham. Yeah. If John C. Riley was like a giant, it would be Gibson Goland. Oh, yeah. John C. Riley is Andre the Giant in My Sinner with Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, in which John Cena and John C. Riley as, uh, Andre the Giant have dinner 
and Andre the Giant talks about these theatre exercises he did in Europe. And this shot of McTeague's face that you're talking about, I think, to, to come back to my earlier point, is, you know, I've, I've had pets in my life. Have you had pets? Uh, yeah. It's great to have a pet. You really want to hold on to it. You really want to care for it. And, and I think McTeague's face in this moment presents like a real ecstatic truth, which is that if someone smacked your pet out of your hand so much that it just disappeared, there's you, only one thing you do. We'd all agree. Yeah. You pick them up and you throw them down a cliff. Yeah. No, it's just the standard behavior yeah uh, um and, and so seeing it, it it sounds like a spectacular moment of action but no it, it's just a mundane occurrence that you see every day yeah and yeah that's how we meet mct yeah yeah so it, it cuts from his close-up of his face to like a very wide shot of, of him just grabbing this other fully grown adult man lifting him over his head and then and then hurling him down a cliff it's good you both are terrified and for some reason absolutely understand him. Uh, then a dentist has come to town. Well, well, so we went over the plot of greed uh, pretty pretty thoroughly in, in yeah. our last episode. So in, in, in this episode, we, we should mainly focus on like what's different about this cut. The first edition from a two-hour cut that, that we have here is there is a bunch of stuff about McTeague's mother and father, yeah. which doesn't exist in the first cut. His mother is in the first cut. His yeah. dad is... Not at all, I believe. No, no. What this four-hour-long cut does, that the, that the two-hour cut just, like, uh, fully excises, is, like, looking at three or four different relationships, uh, which have all been, like, uh, either destroyed or not destroyed by avarice. Yeah, it feels like, in many ways, a fundamentally different film Yeah, to me, because it is the, the shorter cut, is kind of this very specific exploration of this one man and the effects of greed upon him. Yeah, and like a, a large portion of it, it's like a domestic drama about these two people who like think about money in different ways and how that kind of drives a wedge between them. Well, and yeah, and that and that feels very much like what the novel is, what McTeague the novel is, uh, and that it is kind of about this one act. Uh, and whereas calling this greed makes greed the protagonist. Mm. And so you do get these kind of echoing layers throughout the plot in in a way that I man, I wish they were moving. Man, yeah, I wish yeah. this was like the the tough part of watching this after seeing the shorter cut is seeing bits you've seen before being like, yeah, and then it cutting to still photos and you being like, oh no. Because <laughs> it's just it's not how it was meant to yeah. be seen and, and so much of the power of greed is in performance and yeah. tone and the the scenes with the father especially i think suffer the most yes because there are only still images of of, of the of the stuff with, with the father well and he he's this he's a drunkard in a bar yeah and he's he's like he's being like heavily made up and like well cast to look like disgusting and horrifying well I, and also very much like kind of the ghost of christmas future of mcteague yeah yeah um there's the sense of him as a, an inevitability if he stays in this place this is you know the somewhere valley yeah in, yeah in H- California, him, him a small mining town yeah so mcteague's mother and father run some sort of like bar slash boarding house they uh never have any money because mcteague's father is constantly spending all of it on prostitutes yeah and and in like most of the still images we see of him is like he's like like slumped over drunk with some like woman next to him. I, I'd I'd call her a bawdy sex worker. Yeah, she has comically bad teeth. 
uh, almost as if I would. I I think they're false. But she doesn't have uh, the the falsest comical teeth in the movie. No way. Those those are a while away. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this, like, big argument that we don't really get to experience between McTeague's mother and father. He gets violent, and then it ends with him having a heart attack and dying. And that we never get to see what this guy is like is pretty sad, because it does end up, purely because of the visual style of this film, looking like panels from a Fumetti chick track about the dangers of alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, uh, and I absolutely, from looking at the rest of the film, and, and what I'm about to say uh, uh, could apply to all of the, to, to the plot about the old people, the plot about the Reagan Bone Man, mm. but, but I won't repeat myself, is that so much of this film is taking uh, grotesque characters yeah. and characters who are cartooned and expressionist in their design and then having them behave in uh, uh in an utterly real way yeah. like almost like the actors animating their design their makeup and their clothes like like puppets or like masks and so that we can't really know what this dad was really like because it's easy to go like oh he was just some drunk guy and in your head he's waving quarts of ale and bashing people in the yeah, face like, and, then, and like eating a big thing of mutton or whatever yeah and then pathetically falling to the ground having a heart attack is I'm sure it must be more than that. Yeah. And it, it is hard that you have to take this extra step of imagination. Um, but that is, this is the best form we can watch it in. The vet kind of gets back onto stuff we've seen before where a dentist comes to town. He does like a, a tooth pulling demonstration. Yeah, which is done on the bawdy sex worker. Right, With, yeah, with yeah. the bad teeth. Um, which is a new bit, but McTeague is kind of kind of interested in this. Uh, he's in the crowd looking at the dentist, and, and he he like imagines himself on stage being the dentist doing the tooth pulling. Uh, I mean, his uh, in the first cut of the film that we saw, uh, it kind of cuts from this scene of him seeing the dentist and imagining himself as the dentist to like cuts to him in San Francisco. Now he's set himself up as a dentist. We get a scene where his mum is like, I I've talk the dentist into taking you on as an apprentice oh, in this yeah, cut yeah in both okay we don't see the apprenticeship in the in the shorter cut we don't see the apprenticeship and there's an extra scene earlier where he interacts with both parents um but anyway but yeah then we see his apprenticeship yeah yeah, we see him also on stage doing a tooth-pulling demonstration, and in this demonstration, he uses his prodigious golem strength to pull a man's tooth out uh, just with his bare hands. And he doesn't know what he's, like, and yeah. he doesn't realize that that's special as much as, yeah, if, if even if my dentist could, I, I want a tool involved in the process, you yeah. know? I want there to be some sense of precision and also in the scene there is a woman on stage who is played by zazu pitts uh, who becomes a main character later but she's been made up to look different uh, because von Stroheim wanted to like kind of set up like this like idea of mcteague being so like, uncomfortable around women and like this woman in particular early in the film then we go to san francisco uh McTeague, the novel's uh subtitle is a story of san francisco and from what i can tell this is where the novel starts. The prior stuff is an invention okay. uh, 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 of the film. Yeah. And specifically of this film, because this is the second adaptation. Right. What this kind of the film does is it spends a lot more time setting, setting up the, the rest of people who live in, in the same tenement as, as McTeague does. In the shorter cut, it just tells you 
about Nicky. I mean, in this one, it introduces you to a man named Old Granis, who is a veterinarian and runs the Modern Dog Hospital. Of course, which is um, my favorite post-punk band. Yeah. There is also a widowed uh, dressmaker. Miss uh, Baker. Yeah. And her, her and her and old Granis have been like in, have, have been in love for years, but, but, but they've never talked to each other. Yeah. And they live in the same apartment complex as McTeague does. Yeah. This apartment complex is also where Marcus lives, who is an employee of old Granis yeah. and is a friend of uh, McTeague's. Like, charming and romance in a film, but creepy in real life kind of fact. The right. old Grannis and Miss Baker, yeah, they really like each other, but they've never spoken. They are in adjoining rooms, rooms next to each other. Yeah. And, and they both listen to each other through the walls. Yeah, because the walls in this tenement are so thin that they can, like, hear everything the other person's doing. Uh, which, yeah, again, in real life, horrifying. Oh, no, that's like, that's the beginning of a, a German horror film. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, in in the like backyard of of, of a tenement, uh, there is there is a shack, uh, and and inside the shack is uh, uh, this uh, what what's this character's name? It's like Zerko. 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 Yeah. Uh, who? Yeah. Who's a rag and bone man? Yeah. He's yeah. he's a he's a junk trader, and he's married to a Mexican woman called Maria. Uh. Yeah. And, and Maria Miranda Macapa. Yeah. Uh, she she insists a lot in saying. Her whole name. And so these two couples, Zerko and Maria and Old Granis and Miss Baker, basically don't exist in a shorter cut. I think we see... Uh, I, I, I don't think we see any of Old Granis and Miss Baker in a shorter cut. And we, 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 we do see a fair bit of Maria because she plays into the plot of a shorter cut. But we we see almost none of the uh, we see almost none of Zerko. I yeah I I I would not be surprised if we found out they were in like one scene but didn't notice. Yeah yeah um yeah uh, should we break down these two plots kind of yeah now so uh, uh yeah Grannis and Baker essentially just spend a lot of time pining for each other and- like se- seemingly like years over over the course of the film because the film takes place over like yeah. five or six years when when mcteague uh, later gets married to a woman called trina at the wedding old old Grannis and this baker finally talk to each other for the first time and instantly kind of like fall properly in love they decide to leave the city. There's a very charming scene where where you find out that, that they've had a door installed between their two rooms. Yeah. You see a guy like cutting a hole in the wall between their rooms. It's nice. And part of the Miku is like, oh, have you been listening to me? I've been listening to you. Uh, and the thing that the film stresses uh, and that you totally buy is that like this is uh, pure, unimpeded love. Yeah. This is two people who are just really fucking into each other. And with no other reason and, yeah. and like the button on that is that at the very end uh granis admits that he has five thousand dollars which is a big important right. amount of money yeah. like five thousand dollars within this film which at the time go go back listen to 15a we did the currency conversion then but it's like it's a it's it's money it's fix your life money yeah um and, and uh uh but that makes no difference to either of them Theirs is a true love untainted by money. Yeah. So then the other couple of Maria and Zerko. Zerko is a junk trader. And and what Maria does is she um, uh, she goes around selling lottery tickets. She, she's just trying to make her way, just doing whatever she can. Because mm. she goes around asking for junk so that she can get some junk and she can make money selling it to him. Uh, and then uh, in their interactions, he 
she has this big fantasy like oh one day the one thing i wish i had was gold cutlery a perfect set mm. of gold dinner placements and zirko uh who is uh like kind of the opposite of mcteague's father and that i'm kind of glad we don't get to see this performance because uh i would not be surprised if it was not uh a little ferengi style anti-semitism yeah um, yeah, like yeah, like I, I'm I'm guessing the character is supposed to be like like a Polish Jew or something, and yeah, yeah. Um, but she tells him uh, about this fantasy she has in Zerko, who is um erratic, uh, and, and because he is poor, coded as uh, being mentally ill, because mm. uh, that's how those things work, people. Uh, but it's the other way around. In reality, people end up poor because they're mentally ill, as opposed to. Anyway, um, and he starts to believe that she has riches hidden away. So he marries her kind of mainly in the hope of finding these, this imaginary cutlery. Mm. And he keeps asking her about it. And she always sees a different thing about where it is because it's fictional to her. Yeah. And, and there's like a fantasy sequence of, of him, like of him imagining, like digging up this gold cutlery. Yeah, it's good. Like all, all the all the stuff he's digging up is like it's being coloured in gold and it looks really cool and stuff. Uh, and and this is about the time when the film uh, get starts getting into including some pretty uh, abstract expressionist imagery of like representing the thrall and violence and, and mind rot of greed mm. by having these like talon like hands just uh, uh, kind of rapturously undulating near big piles of gold yeah. and golden things. Yeah, which 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 doesn't happen in the in the shorter cut, right? I think we got a few little bits of it. Maybe. It's not as much as we currently yeah, got. It, 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 it happens like a bunch of times in, in, oh, in yeah. this cut. Uh, it, it's the fourth subplot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and their plot ends the worst of all of them, I'd, I'd say. I'd say it's tied. Yeah. Also, they have a baby together, but the baby is like you know like born defective and di- and dies after dies after a couple of weeks. Yeah, and then Zerko tries to kill Maria, uh, and but she, she's saved by Marcus. And then a few weeks later, uh, people go into their house one day, and uh, he has actually killed her and killed himself. Yeah, uh, uh, the fantasies of greed leading to innocent and needy being destroyed or driven mad and it, it's yeah this is the one i'm kind of glad we're seeing in stills i think this plot in the modern world works kind of better as a representation of how it would be in the past mm. than up against this film's ideas of monstrousness i think would too quickly cross over into uh you know what we consider uh, evil racism yeah um but the point is good rather than the execution. Whereas like Frank Hayes and Fanny Midgley as Grannis and Baker are, oh, oh, they just got lovely faces. Yeah. It's it's wonderful to see like an unironically positive and, and like the, the comedy of it is charm as opposed to mockery representation of two older people uh, falling in love yeah. in a way that, oh yeah, it's just uh, Grannis and Baker. It's uh, it's uh, super nice, and so it is kind of as the center point of those two extremes that we get McTeague and Trina's relationship. So yeah, uh, as you say, McTeague has a friend called uh, Marcus Schuler who works for Old Grannis at, at the beginning of a film, and uh, uh, in 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 one of the first scenes where 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 Marcus and and McTeague are hanging out, 
Marcus is like, I've, I've got I've got to leave now. My my hot cousin's coming to town. I'm you know going to go try fuck her, I guess. And uh, yeah, so he he's like he's he's engaged to his to his cousin Trina, who's played by yeah. Zazu Pitts, and uh, from The Lion King. Yeah, their, their first scene is is one which doesn't. Uh, I think which which does which does exist in like a much in like a truncated form in yeah. the in the in the shorter cut. We're now into a run of of like the central plot up until one point where there's a whole new section. Yeah, uh, is what is being restored is like beats at the beginning or end of a scene. Yeah, yeah, and so there is this big family get together for 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 Marcus and Trina's family. And they all go and see their like very German immigrant family. They everyone's like, all, all all the kids are like like marching around with like fake guns and doing like army practice. And all all the men have giant are, like big portly guys with giant mustaches. And in in this scene, we see the woman with the the craziest teeth in the movie, who's who's just like her, her entire top row of teeth is all buck teeth. And like she cannot cannot close her mouth because of how giant and fake her teeth are. It is, yeah, it's not good. No. I don't know how she must only eat krill. <laughs> yeah, no, though it's not so much. Yeah, it's a sieve rather than chompers. Yeah. Oh, there's also a shot in this, which is I think sadly only in still where we see one of the large poorly German men just holding up a string of sausages, just like stuck on a yeah. fork. And just like looking at them lovingly. That that's um Trina's dad. Yeah, yeah. A popper. As we mentioned in the previous episode on on greed, uh, the 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 intertitles like it changes on which characters talk, but they're done in like different dialects, and sometimes they'll they'll include like stuttering and misspeaking and stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so in 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 all the scenes with 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 these characters, uh, the the mother is referred to as Mama. M O M M E R, and uh, both Mommer and Popper speak in uh, 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 in the intertitles in like cod pigeon German. Yeah, so there's a lot of like V A T VATS uh, mm. instead of that's and things like that. Yeah, um, we also get to spend a, a bit more time with her three younger brothers, August, Max, and Moritz, mm. who are. Uh, just three rapscallions who go around wearing sailor hats made of newspaper <laughs> and monocle, and oh, they they just seem like a charming rap bunch, uh, and uh, also kind of exactly what hipsters would wear today. I just thought they were a charming bunch, and I like to see them. Yeah, yeah, and so at 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 this party, uh, Marcus is pushing Trina on a swing, and uh, she falls off and chips one of her front teeth, and Marcus is like, "It's fine." I know a dentist. He's called McTeague. He's never creepy to woman uh, who he's <laughs> <Yeah>. sedated. Uh, <laughs> so he takes her to McTeague, and over the course of several weeks, McTeague like fixes her teeth uh, and uh, also falls in love with her while she's like sedated and kisses her while she's sedated. Yeah, uh, uh, d- d- during the, 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 the like final time that she's come there to have her to have her teeth fixed, he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to see her again." I better make out of her while she's unconscious. And, and this is an interesting point of like, because this is, I cannot find the name of like the orchestra or the, the composer um, uh, of this, but like, if this is like the canonical score that goes with it, uh, is that this moment where she is sedated and, and he kisses her is presented, you know, there's swelling strings and triumphant horns. Maybe there's not triumphant horns, no. but it's but it's like a romantic moment in a silent film. Whereas, sort of, but like 
but like it, it, as soon as he does it, he like he he sort of recoils and is like intertitles about like the, like him realizing like. Mm-hmm. I but I I think the first version we watched, the version with the asphalt jungle score, yeah. worked much harder to problematize this yeah. moment, and, and I I think it is interesting to see how that changes how yeah. like it's an obvious statement but like music changes how you feel about scenes uh in films and because a lot of the tension then on in their early courtship is kind of about mcteague being more into it than she is yeah and wearing her down yeah he 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 asks her out on a date and she like agrees and they 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 go to the theater uh, in, in a scene which isn't in the original uh isn't in the shorter cut i think uh they, yeah, they, no, they, yeah they they go to the theater and uh, because McTeague is like a big dumb guy who like wants to seem cultured, he asks for specific tickets, but gives like uh, but gives like contradictory instructions for where he wants to sit. It it it's a real who's on first. Yeah, if, uh, the first draft of who's on first because it's very much like he he goes up to the ticket guy. He's like, I I want I want I want seats on the right. I want I want seats away from the drums. Yeah, and and the guy's like, oh, but. But the drums are on the right. Yeah. And, and then there's a whole like back and forth around that, which ends with like, cause McTeague doesn't understand the difference between like audience right and stage right. Which is something the ticket seller explains twice. Yeah. So it is, this is less like a hilarious misunderstanding than like a, a, a man being seemingly uh, deaf for periods of time. Yeah. And then it ends with McTeague like reaching into the box office and grabbing the guy and threatening to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. He doesn't give him the right tickets. Yeah. And then they uh, go in and watch the show. Yeah. Um, uh, but eventually, but, uh, and after that, uh, uh, McTeague goes to make another move on Trina and she's like, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I don't love you, which is how a lot, of dates end in my experience yeah. um, with people quite firmly, but regretfully informing me that I, <laughs> that they don't love me. Uh, and that's what I get for just saying, I love you to everyone I meet. Mm-hmm. There is another one of those expressionist sequences after a scene with Maria and the junk trader. Uh, there, there is a shot of this sort of like pitch black void with like a giant fist in it. And there are two people inside, like squirming inside the fist, and the fist is squeezing them. Yeah, it's uh, good. Trina buys a lottery ticket from Maria. Uh, McTeague has gone to Marcus and said, "Hey, I, I also think your cousin's really hot. Uh, I, I, I want to marry her." And Marcus is like, "Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm done with her. You, you can have her. I, I, I met a, I met a rich girl. I'm gonna marry. I'm gonna marry her." Yeah. And just after these two men agree on who owns this woman, Trina finds out that she's won $5,000 in, in the lottery. Uh, and this is after they've got married. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then Marcus is uh, super angry about that. Yeah. Uh, Tr- Trina is convinced by her uncle to invest uh, all, all the money in his store with an interest rate of $25 a week. Month. A month, okay. Yeah. Right. But like McTeague is like, let's, let's go just, you know, chuck some money at the wall. Let's buy... $5,000 mixes. Um, uh, but she's like, no, I will invest this. We'll live off the dentistry money. and, and the, Yeah, the ju- just, just like Jay Leno. As happens in, in the shortcut, Marcus uh, now gets really mad at McTeague because he thinks like, you stole my girl and you stole my money. Because Marcus's marriage, like uh, Mar- Marcus's new engagement didn't work out. Yeah. And so now, now he's just like, uh, uh, now he's just a sad, bitter man. Who thinks that he deserves this money? And and, and, and McTeague, I think, mean, very rightly says, "It's not my money. It's it's Trina's money." Yeah, 
Uh, and, and so Marcus leaves, and but to get his revenge, informs the dental board that McTeague has been working as a dentist without being registered. Yeah. Uh, and, and so the, uh, 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 that that is stripped from him and leads to kind of like the beginning of downfall uh, is that uh, McTeague, all the time he's been a dentist, has lusted after this big gold tooth to hang outside his shop. Um, and like I know how big you're thinking this tooth is, and I'm like toddler sized. It's it's a it's a it's a giant giant gold tooth, and, and like that is the thing he wants uh, uh, to spend some of the five thousand dollars on, and eventually he takes some of his savings and buys it. But when he loses his dentistry uh, uh, office because he he's not yeah. licensed, he has to sell the tooth. Yeah. Um, and, and things begin to get very tight. Yeah, for, for them very quickly. The, 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 there's a there's a big time dash, and we 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 like skip a couple of years of their lives, and it's just like it's got even worse now. Yeah, they're selling their stuff. Um, McTeague finally snaps and bites Trina's fingers. Does he? Yeah, and they get infected. That's why she loses her fingers. I thought she, I thought it was because she got frostbite. No, that then she goes outside. No, he bites her fingers. Okay, I, I thought it was because she went out looking for him and didn't have gloves on and got frostbite. and had Maybe it. that made it worse, but the, like the, <laughs> they have the fight where he bites her. I didn't then see he, him. Okay, then I, he takes her savings and is like, I'm fucking going fishing, and goes out into the cold, and then she follows him Yeah, and can't find him. Yeah, and, and, and when, when it shows the doctor saying we've got to amputate his fingers, her fingers have been, like, coloured in blue. Oh, yeah. To, to show, like, frostbite. I, I think that is in combination with the bite. Okay. So is he, like, a Komodo dragon? His mouth is just filled with, with like, horrifying bacteria? I Like, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, But it, it's... So now she has to work as a one-handed janitor yep. at a children's school. A fingerless maid. Um, And, and she begins... Becoming, it all becomes very Duke of Burgundy. <laughs> uh, she goes to withdraw half the money, and, and the uh, in yeah, the right, most and, surreal scene in the film, and, and also all, all, all of the stuff with her like losing her fingers is is and working as a maid is not in the uh, is not in the shorter cut. Uh, no, it, it's not. Hmm. Um, uh, but she the the scene the them leaving and him running away. Yeah, yeah. Then cut, but like again, we can't. The difference between cuts here, we can't be sure of because this period of the film, there is quite a lot of it is actual footage. Mm. Um, and, and the cut down version we saw because the actual, the MGM cut down version is now very hard to actually find. And the cut down version we saw was a, a third party reducing yeah. the film. Yeah. Just so uh, we're not, we're speaking to our separate experiences as opposed to the actual different cuts of the film. Yeah. But yeah, no, she goes to her uncle and is like, can I have two and a half thousand dollars? And he, a business owner says, no, it would be easier for me if you took all the money, which I do not think would occur. I think this is a David Lynch dream. <laughs> I think this is surrealism uh, on, on the, on the par with the flash running so fast, a box falls in and out of water. Like it is not nah. Yeah. Nah, buds. Um, but anyway, she gets her $5,000, she spreads it out on her bed and sleeps on it, probably mm. inventing that trope. Yep. In the, in the cup, in the first couple we watched, uh, this is when he kills her. Yep. Uh, but in, in, in this couple, there's like an extra 20 minutes, uh, in, in, in between, uh, so he, he, he comes back one night, he like knocks on the window and he's like, 
hey, let me in. I'm, I'm out of money now. And and she, you know. And t- his pitch was that he was taking that money to go fishing and to earn more money. Mm. Um, Just, yeah. Yeah, but uh, he's, you know, spent it all on drinks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so she, she says, I'm, I'm not letting you back in. You're, you're never getting, you're never getting any of my money. Uh, and then he, he, he goes off and there, there, there is a scene which is only, which is only told for like stills and intertitles that are quotes from a book where, uh, there is a piano mover who is trying to get a piano into a, into like a second or third store, uh, uh, third, third, third story window. Yep. And the piano, like a PG tip said, but without a chimpanzee. Yeah, and the the piano almost falls on the piano mover, but 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 McTeague saves his life, and we we don't get to see this incredible action scene. Yeah. Uh, but but this this piano mover is uh, so impressed that McTeague saved his life that that he gives McTeague a job at the at a piano moving store. Yeah. And there's a whole thing there, like, and McTeague was so strong he can move all the pianos. Yeah, and yeah. sadly, we don't get any scenes of, like, he can lift two pianos, one in each hand, yeah. and just throw them. It's, yeah. it's heartbreaking. Like, like, like in F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh, where Emil Jennings has the dream sequence about being the, like, the world's best doorman at a hotel, <laughs> where he takes two giant, like, leather suitcases off of a... Of, of off of the off of the carriage and carries him inside like one on each hand. <laughs> I mean, he's and you can like, you can kind of see the wires, but like it's still yeah. it's still very funny. He's like throwing them up in the air and catching them, and he starts like juggling these giant suitcases. Good scene. If anyone hasn't seen FW Miles for the the last laugh slash Dulitz Man, great movie. Check it out. I'm not. Uh, uh, I will eventually. It's a movie that's credited with inventing the the tracking shot, or as they call it the. The unchained camera, where they just put a camera on like a wheelchair and moved it around, and crazy. Yeah, I don't. I think that's where cinema went to go wrong. I like just a locked off shot. Yeah, that's why you love Ozu so much. I well, as 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 some as as the one of the two of us who makes the little preview trailers, I got to tell you, uh, looping little bits of footage from films much easier if the camera doesn't move. (laughs) And I got to tell you, not to spoil Zack Snyder's Justice League, but. Boy, even in the shots that seem still, he loves a little push. He loves a little pull, little pan, little tilt, dollying. I loves it. I found this great shot of Dark Side. I was like, oh, look at that. It hasn't moved. Tried to loop it. No, just a slow creep. And I'm not talking about Dark Side, who's also a slow creep. Any wither. Um, but yeah. So yeah. So after he's worked at the, the piano store for a bit, he he goes back to Trina. He gets in a fight with her about the money. Uh, he kills her. He takes for money, and he heads out back to the more remote parts of California. Uh, in in the shorter cut, he he goes just like kind of straight out to the desert. But in this bit, uh, in in this cut, he he goes back to being a miner for a while until this all like uh, uh, the 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 like the solitude of mining gives him too much time to think about the fact that he murdered his wife. And we've all been there. Yeah, and he can't take that anymore. So he he heads out to the desert. He gets a horse and decides to like head off through 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 Death Valley when yeah. when he sees there's like wanted there's like a wanted poster for him. Yeah, uh, and then Marcus, uh, who it turns out has also been living in the same desert community, uh, sees the wanted poster and uh, jo- joins a, uh, joins a posse to to go hunt him down. Uh, and when when we're chasing him, uh. The, the the leaders of the posse say, uh, "No, we're not. We're not going to go through the desert because uh, we'll all fucking die. Yeah, we're 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 going to go around the desert and see if we can like catch them on the other side." But Marcus says, 
Nah, I'm uh, I'm cha- I'm following him through the desert. Uh, and 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 a thing just before this uh, is that he's teamed up with a pr- prospector called Cribbins. Oh right, yeah. And they found some quartz. They're going to be millionaires. Be, yes, yeah. Uh, but it is seeing the wanted poster, getting spooked, and run away. He he abandons that. So right, yeah. His fear takes him away from the one possible kind of quote unquote honest source of mm. uh, salvation and money. Yeah. Yeah, and so then, then the 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 sort of like chase through the desert sequence is mo- is mostly the same. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. McTeague is like a couple of days ahead of Marcus. Uh, they're, they're they're both running out of water. Uh, Marcus's horse dies. Uh, McTeague starts hallucinating things. He he uses up all his bullets uh, shooting at like imaginary snakes. And then after Marcus's uh, horse has died. He's basically crawling through the desert, and he sees McTeague and McTeague's horse in the distance. McTeague is asleep. He walks up to him with, with his with his gun. Yeah, he walks up to him with his gun drawn and with some handcuffs. And there's there's a confrontation, uh, which ends with uh, uh, w- w- which ends with Marcus uh, firing uh, his gun at McTeague's horse, which uh, kills the horse and also goes right through uh, McTeague's water, uh, uh, goes right through McTeague's canteen, gets rid of all all the water. In attempting to apprehend him, he, he's handcuffed McTeague to him? Yeah. The confrontation ends with McTeague basically beating Marcus to death on the ground and then realizing that the two of them are handcuffed together and he's got no water and he's... and he's going to die out in the fucking desert. And he's allowed one moment of grace in this, in that he, he's got another pet bird he, he's, mm. he's, he, um, that he's brought with him, uh, and he takes it out considering that he might eat it, but instead he frees it. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he finally frees something he has imprisoned. Yeah, and then there is, uh, uh, then there is a final shot, which is not in the uh, shorter cut of the movie that we saw, uh, where it cuts from like McTeague, like on 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 his knees, like realizing that all fucking hope is lost. Uh, it cuts to like a massive wide shot where there is the most color in the entire movie. The sand and cracked earth in the foreground is is, is kind of like a bluish gray, and then the the sky in the in the background is like a uh, it's like sunset is like a like kind of like uh it's like a like orange with sort of like purpley stuff in it yeah. and and mcteague is just sort of like a speck in the middle of a frame just on his knees it's great it's yeah. beautiful so i think an interesting thing about greed uh, is that it is kind of hard to get attacked on because its reception now is it's 96 percent on rotten tomatoes yeah it is it is widely acclaimed and i don't it's, think it's, it's on this list uh, and, and and i don't think i'm out of turn on in terms of this podcast saying we, we agree yeah uh, uh, uh it, it's a bonzo dog doodah film <laughs> it's uh, it's 10 out of 10 gold star great uh um but at the time because it was so hurriedly cut and there was kind of such scandal around it that it was kind of when it was discussed it was more about that yeah than it, than it was the film itself but i but i think this is interesting a photo play which was uh, a, a film review magazine yeah. from 1925 so this is a review of greed on its release um yeah a photo play every month would do uh, a top six no not every month uh every half a year <laughs> so the these the it was like the, these are the top six films uh of the um of 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 the time and uh, it included is greed 
uh, and uh, reviewed by James R. Quirk, who elsewhere in the issue kind of uh, speaks to a dissatisfaction with both the film generally in a longer feature piece and with Von Stroheim as a director, right. more specifically. But he, he summarizes it in this. It's available on archive.org, this issue, if you're interested in reading that feature. It, uh, it's pretty long. Um, on page 26 of this issue, he writes, I discuss greed in the limited space of this report. I can only say that I never entered a picture house with more anticipation and departed with greater disappointment. The New York newspaper critics acclaimed it as a masterpiece. Greed is sordid. Greed is depressing. Greed is brutal. Greed is shocking. It reeks with good acting and wonderful direction. Translated to the screen from Frank Norris's McTeague, Director von Stroheim has emphasized the detail of a sordid story until it becomes almost repulsive. It is the realism of vulgarity to the nth degree. And if that is art, von Stroheim has produced a masterpiece. This is not one of Photoplay's six best films. And it is given a place on this page only because of its news value. But did you find a negative review as well? Uh, yes. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And because it is like, the interesting thing about that is like, he is right on almost every front. And the thing that is different is like, it, in the idea in 1925, writing on a film being like, this is vulgar and we shouldn't show these things. Uh, uh, vulgarity is for Noel Coward plays, you know, <laughs> yeah. that are about people having affairs and feeling a little guilty about it. Um, whereas now it is, you're like, yeah, fucking obviously. Like, this is what art exists to shine a light on the places where darkness grows, and greed is the best example. Um, It's also worth noting that both Goland and Pitts are in their top six performances of the month. So on Letterboxd, there are no uh, half-star reviews of greed? Which seems, like, I'm sure that there there is, like, there is a 19-year-old film student somewhere who saw this film and was bored by it, Yeah, yeah. There are a bunch of, like, one-star and, like, one-and-a-half-star reviews most of them aren't particularly interesting. Uh, this review by Oliver Fenwick the Twelfth, assuming that's a pseudonym. Their review goes uh, as such: I couldn't finish it. This movie made me see why Hollywood fat cats cut down movies. I'm angry at this movie. I used to be on the side of a director. Let them make creative work. I would say something new and original. Ugh! The first hour of this one just made me feel like what a directorial masturbation session. Boring. The characters didn't hold my interest. The actors were nothing special. He he could have started at an hour in when greed actually started to play a role and lost very little. I'll save the rest of my critique for after I can block off a half of an afternoon, tape up my eyelids, and piss some life away. Yeah, that they're just... It is, like, the trouble with greed, especially in this form... Like, I want to be clear, sound. Yeah, uh, uh, Is that we, we're not watching it. We are trying to fathom the film that it was. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that is more work than the film wants to be. And so there are times when the experience of the text you are watching, as opposed to the text you are investing in, can be more laborious than the film itself is. Like the two and a half hour cut, like Von Stroheim knows how to keep pace up. He knows how to yeah. do character beat, knows how to get good performances. Uh, and whenever that is happening, you're like, fuck yeah. And when you are just watching people do the best job they can do of recreate lost footage through sparse stills, which is just not like they've done their best job. And I don't think anyone involved will be like, oh, yeah, it's as good. Yeah. The only thing you can really think when watching those sequences is like, I like I wish this movie actually existed as much as it needs to, because like, yeah, like so, so much of the stuff that doesn't fully exist in this film is like 
what I think could potentially be the best stuff. There are so there are so many like fascinating ideas that we will just never get to see this film fully explore in in, in the way that it maybe does or maybe doesn't. Yes. Yeah. So the uh, the 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 top four films of Oliver Fenwick the twelfth. Okay. Uh, one of them is a movie uh, we've done for this podcast. I'll just say one of them is a movie that I'm not uh, particularly familiar with. It is a movie by a Korean director called Castaway on the Moon by Lee Hae-jun, uh, which I don't know anything about. As, as someone who, every time I engage with South Korean cinema, are like, yeah, this combination of like uh, uh, emerging from a, 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 a kind of Christian uh, a culturally Christian background into an increasingly hostile world while feeling unable to make emotional connections with other humans really appeals to me for some reason. Uh, and Lee Hae-jun is one of the filmmakers I've always meant to get into, but, but never had. But Like a Virgin and Castaway on the Moon, um, people who like the same Korean films as me right, yeah. uh, uh, uh I recommend them a lot. And yeah. Uh, the, the next film is something we've done on this podcast. Uh, the test. No, it's, it's something that was, is from, 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 from a sound column. Uh, okay. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. No. Crash. Yee Yee? No. Uh, is it American? No. Is it British? No. Is it, uh, Japanese? No. Is it Korean? No. What, what am I missing? France. Um, it, it, it's it, it's Italian. Ex, it's explicitly not French, but it's influenced by France. It's, it's a it's a rejection of Frenchness. Oh, Grand Illusion. No. Um, you got to give me more than that. Is it very long? No, it's it's, it's one of the shortest movies we've oh, done. Uh, 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 a day at the. No, it's 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 not French. It's it's a rejection of Frenchness. Oh, no, okay, I I apologize, but um, it's it's an African film. Oh, Tuki Buki. Yeah. Fuck, of course. Yeah, uh, then... Shit, man, how can I have forgotten about the books and the two? Yeah. Tree, preview for Took and Birdie, season two came out, looks good. Uh, the, the next film is a film by Jean Renoir. It's not one of the ones from Donald's podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the films he made during his American period. I don't know those very okay. well. Okay, uh, it's, uh, it's a film called For River. It's one of Martin Scorsese's favorite movies. Oh, like Midsommar and... Um, Oh, what was the other interesting thing on that list he put out? Oh, man is, woman is the future of man. Right, yeah. Which is like, not even, that is not the Hong Sung Su. Anyone would, like, it's good, but like, turning, uh, anyway. Yeah, and then the fourth film is something you just mentioned. Uh, is it, uh, Grand Illusion? No, like, no, like, just mentioned. Uh, Turning Gate? Earlier. Midsummer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, like, the more I sit with it, and as much as Midsummer does have a debt to Wicker Man, mm. like Midsummer is like like everyone agrees it's good, but I think it's like I think it is aging very well. Yeah, like it it has a it, yeah. And I think once once the discourse around it stopped being like it's a girl boss movie about how good it is to like to to set Jack Rayner on fire and say so like no, this is a movie about someone being indoctrinated in, into a cult. And it's about like how it's about how cults prey on people's vulnerabilities and exploit them and stuff. Well, and also just how and and like the the the, the, the stuff that she is going through is like like obviously terrible, and and we like relate to that and sympathize with her. Yeah. But that ending is not like happy for her. No, it's deliberate. Like it's like yeah, it, that's insane. Like mm. that. Like 
that the that smile at the end wreathed in flowers is like so like it is hot how <laughs> like what the f- yeah anyway i think people are, are trolling a little there but it is also interesting that it is not even the best modern film that i would call a modern wicker man hmm? which is of course the wicker man no Suspiria 2018 but uh hmm? i'm gonna say oh i've got a big i have a big quite developed theory on about how Suspiria uh, 2018, the best Suspiria, uh, is the natural successor to The Wicker Man. Okay. Um, to be clear, the 70s the Wicker Cage Man. One, no, yeah. no, no. I don't think you can. No, there's an obvious successor to the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man, and that's B-movie. <laughs> but we will save uh, save all of that conversation for our Suspiria, Suspiria episode, which I'm sure we will do at some point. Yeah, sure. Um, it'll be eight hours long, and it'll just be me being like, okay, so the point at which Chloe Grace Moretz stops talking in English and starts speaking in German is when she starts alluding to the wider power. What does that say? Anyway. Eric von Stroheim's Greed, 1924, before our restoration, sound. Yeah, sound. We didn't. There is this thing of watching... When we were watching it and the subplots were being introduced, I said, like, this at points feels like it keeps introducing you with people and then you just keep following them mm. and you expect the film to split infinitely yeah. until um, you're just watching an infinite film of millions of people, including us, watching it right now. Mm. And I like the the flow and feeling of that, that it can be both, it can feel so organic, and so didactic and be so clearly about greed, even in a form where it is inc- an incomplete version of an incomplete version of mm. the film. It just speaks to the power that it has. Yeah. And I think it, I think it's uh, a really I, I, special work. I remember on our previous episode about greed, you were sort of apprehensive about this episode because you're like, I've, like, I've seen this movie's take on greed. Do I need another two hours of that? how 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 do you how do you feel about that now i think the really useful thing is that uh uh, what was cut was whole new plots and new people to hang out with yeah it it wasn't just like another two hours of of mcteague and trina just all like shitting around in their house uh uh, and it was those added bits with like you know my you come to me as a script doctor. I'm like, the bits we need to restore are the other characters and other plots. Yeah. Not the additional material to make T plot. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, I think I, I would be, I think my apprehension did not account for the fact that I, there was actually going to be new material as opposed to more. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which is so often the difference between a good and bad extended version. Yeah. So. Oh, I saw oh. I Am Love. Luca Guaragino's uh, 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 2009 film. I just, because we, uh, everyone should see that. Anyway, 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 speaking of other films that I went into expecting to feel mixed about and came out loving, stroke liking, then. Yeah. Have you ever seen a film and thought, do you know what I would like this to be two hours longer? And and, and, and made by a director I like less. <laughs> yeah. And like with less jokes. <laughs> I would like, yeah. Have you ever sat watched film girl? I want this to be more serious. I want it to be dimmer. I want more continuity references. I no one has ever looked at a film and thought what I would like this to do is connect more to a failed cinematic <laughs> universe. No one saw the Tom Cruise the Mummy and were like the problem is that there aren't enough other members from the monster verse in this. 
The Dark Universe, please. Oh, right. The Monster Versus, uh, the one in which Godzilla and Kong. Claimed. Yeah. You're going to later today. I am. I'm going to go um, Very excited. Thursday. You go, tell me if it's worth an IMAX. Yeah. Check out that ratio. Um, speaking of IMAX. A movie that uh, I'm very disappointed I wasn't able to see an IMAX. Only Because it's sh- not possible to see it in IMAX. Well, wh- it was, wh- it had a premiere in Australia. It was, oh, okay. Uh, Zack Snyder's Just Whedon, Zack Snyder's The Justice League, The Snyder Cut, The Whedon Cut, The Snyder Cut was shown once in cinemas in an IMAX cinema. But I, I think the more... We 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 watched these two films about uh, two days ago, right? Yeah, yeah, like a day. It, it doesn't matter. What is time? Time's a flat circle. I'm the first person to say that. Absolutely. And the more distance I've had from both films, the more I have enjoyed them. And like, yeah. Part of that was the fact that watching films for eight hours <laughs> without a break and only like coffee, noodles, and some beers, <laughs> uh, it takes a toll. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, but, but, but by, by the like middle of, of Zack Snyder's Justice League, you were just saying nonsense. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. when I turned to you to, to like look scornfully at you, you would, you, you were just like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Just, we express it. We go loopy in different ways. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I had a good time. Um, uh, I hope you did as well. Yeah. It, Cause if you didn't, then it was just torture. Then I was just torturing you. Um, I my, obviously my appreciation for greed has grown mm. as I have had the distance to look through the recreation at the film. Yeah. And also my appreciation for <laughs> Justice League has grown because Justice League is a it is too long. Yeah. It it is and there's an hour of good stuff, 2 hours of just white noise, just slurry, just events, 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 half an hour of good stuff another half an hour in noise and it should like they should have released it as a miniseries that was the plan it's split into episodes mm. uh it is made worse by being seen all together and like the idea that even a cut down version of that was intended to be released into cinemas is insane but maybe not bad yeah but like there is also the sense of like this exists for fan service this is oliver stone doing his fifth cut of alexander and being like <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, sure. I got, I got it this time. Yeah, I'm going to make it eight hours long. I'm just going to, every idea I had, every scene, like, yeah, the epilogue for this film is like eight or nine scenes where clearly with the eight or nine options for the end credit scene they wanted yeah, to yeah. do. And yeah, they just did all of them. Yeah, and like, I don't hate that, but I do very much like this film as a guilty pleasure. Right, yeah. Because it is odd. Oh, after it you said is that Zack Snyder's best film Mm. and I think it is yeah because it is the one where Zack Snyder leans the most into like okay this is my aesthetic like half the film is in slow-mo yeah it does his crazy over top aesthetic I think the the best that all of his films have done obviously there's the Elmore like all superhero narratives are fascist but like it is one of his least fascist feeling movies well no because it is about and like this and like a key thing in my like guilty pleasure-ness of it is that I think this film, this cut of the film especially reveals that like the fascistness of his representation of Superman was supposed to be a problem. Yeah. Like, cause the whole pitch, uh, uh, uh well, they did Man of Steel and Man of Steel did not lose money. And mm. so they were like, obviously give us a plan for a whole universe. And he was like, okay, I've got, 
four more films that will be a series and we only got we got bvs doj which is a uh, boring yeah uh and part of what makes it boring is that it is so dour and so linear mm. um whereas this film is surprising is serious but not dour yeah as yeah. much as it is about batman having killed god but it seems to me that the arc of those films is like how do you actually make superman work as a character in a narrative because there's like the entry level problems and that he's so powerful that he solves every situation yeah and his character is such that he's such a good scout such a good boy scout who believes in such truth he loves so purely that of course he's always going to do the right thing is creating a scenario in which how do you get to that point and how do you use superman as an object where you're not just constantly being like oh actually i've got um uh quartz kryptonite and that means that actually my plot to build a new island to sell for real estate will work you know <laughs> when it's just like oh no superman he can just freeze and destroy you, you yeah and, and i think yeah that it was gonna go somewhere the, the fascismness was superman's problem that he was going to learn to resolve and like building to the solution of that was the end of the art yeah there was a thing i said during our previous justice league episode where i was talking about the way that gal gadot as wonder woman was shot in the movie and I said, the way that Joss Whedon and Zack Snyder shoot her makes her skirt feel like, you know, three or four inches shorter than it does in Wonder Woman. And uh, what, watching this version, uh, seems like that was all Whedon. Yeah. It's no, like, it does not f- feel like that for a fucking second in this. Like, I, I no. yeah, so I, like, I, I, t- I take it back, Zack Snyder. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think Sucker Punch is gross, but like, may- maybe you've like learned since then. But like, or, or maybe people are actually right about Sucker Punch being good, and I'm wrong about it. Who oh no, I, I think people are right about the intention yeah. of Sucker Punch, yeah. and, and the the only thing I disagree is that I don't think it achieves it. Yeah. Um. Uh. I I I wholly believe that Zack Snyder believes that that that's a feminist film. Yeah. And, and like, uh, like on the like Facebook film shit here groups, I mean, there there are a lot of women like who who like find that movie to be like incredibly important to them and find a lot of like strength and empowerment. In yeah. It. No. That, and yeah. That like, like there, there is something about that movie that works not for me, but does work for other people. Well, and like the the criticism we made, we uh, I've made against both Sucker Punch and Justice League on on this very cast. Um is that they don't kick butt enough. Yeah. And the thing that I feel the guiltiest in my pleasure of on this film is that I just keep thinking about, like, and even bits that are in the Whedon cut, the, yeah. the scene, the one scene that is almost entirely unchanged, its pacing is different, is, is Batman meeting the Flash. Um, but even that, just by lingering on, revealing the flash's powers to batman right, yeah through this extended sequence of slow motion of him grabbing a batarang it just feels like it kicks butt more the the scene of wonder woman stopping the robbery yeah which is like definitely boring in the whedon version and we i remember us comparing it to an action scene in a cw show mm. and just by having a more percussive pace uh, a, gr- a a greater handle on stakes and just the very much the tone of this film gives everything stakes because yeah. like the when when the robber with the machine gun points at the group of children you're like in the weed vision, you're like of course those children are going to be fine this film started with two children with a podcast asking 
uh, Henry Cavill's deep faked face, <laughs> what he likes about humanity. Yeah. Where in this, you're like, no, it does the Snyder Cut add the murder of children to it? And so when Wonder Woman is doing sweet as like rolls and flips, deflecting all these bullets too fast, you're like, fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you feel it. The way that the two movies open is like so starkly different. Yeah. Ween's version is, yeah, two kids with a video podcast talking to, hit, talking to. Please. They're called vodcast. They're, they're called vodcast. And I remember when people were trying to make that phrase uh, take off in it. Uh, so thankful it never did. You went to Tiki Bar TV fan? Nope. It was the big vodcast by yeah. my memory. There was one which I, I never watched, but I, I would see constantly on the Apple iTunes store uh, because uh, it was a show called John Eats Carrots. It was a, a video podcast where a man would listen to other podcasts while eating carrots. Yeah, so that's how Whedon's version opens. Which is, I, I think, kind of like a nice idea, but I, I, I don't think it's executed particularly well. I, I think it is like, uh, uh, I, I had a good conversation on Twitter with Stuart Drake, who, who, who's, a, who's a filmmaker. Check out his stuff on, on Twitter and YouTube. He's a musician as well. Anyway, um, where he, he says that in many ways, seeing how we didn't recut this film is of a benefit to this cut. Yes. Um, and, and part of that, and a, and a key part of that, I think, is that you can understand how almost everything Whedon added is, is so clearly there, like, um, because they went pretty much, this and BVS DOJ were shot pretty much back to back. Right. Like, there were, there was maybe a couple of months in between, um, and, and, and then right as they were about to start shooting, uh, BVSDOJ came out and everyone was like, check this out. Do you bleed Martha? Yeah. And like genuinely risable things that are not interesting um, and suffer by being the first part of a story. Yeah. You know, they're about to start filming and DC were like, you have to lighten this up. Right. Yeah. And like Snyder has always said that like, no, the pitch was that you start pitch dark and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and i think it's very clear that especially the introduction of flash and aquaman uh, uh in this film is supposed to be like light coming into the world yeah he, 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 yeah he, even though both of those characters are still kind of like fairly dark in this movie aquaman is like very clear like an alcoholic in this movie <laughs> Like every single scene you see him in, he's he's fucking like sculling a bottle of scotch. But he, they get quips. Yeah, they they get jokes, and, and like there is the character dynamic that the now unspoken character dynamic between Batman and Wonder Woman of like who is the leader here, yeah. um, which leads to like an interesting thing is a clear point of like tension and and light. But they were still like Justice League has to be more upbeat, Zach, please. Mm. Uh, and, and then of course, uh. Uh, there was tragedy in Zack Snyder's yeah. life, which is, was horrible. And Whedon, who was already on board to write reshoot scenes that Snyder was going to direct, takes over the whole thing. Yeah. Being given the mandate of it. It has to be under two hours and it has to be funny. And you can see how he has gone through this film that is supposed to be like light slowly entering the world and the possibility of hope occurring. Yeah. And being like, no, no, how do we make this film that is about maybe humans are worth saving and turn it into like humans are great everyone's funny let's talk about brunt yeah and like uh, there are a lot of people who say all the shit is whedon's fault and like uh, i i don't think you can fully blame him because no. like the, the studio asked him to do an impossible fucking thing yeah yes. but like a lot of the stuff that he did write is like 
some of the like weakest material he's ever written and it's it's like directed very blandly for the most part in a way that does not mesh with Snyder's style at all and the way he shoots Wonder Woman is insane. Yeah. Have you uh read Joss Whedon's Wonder Woman script? Uh no, but I've 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 heard about it. Um uh, I've heard I've heard only bad things about it. I uh, I want uh let me just find it so I can read you <clears throat> uh this is how Joss Whedon in his 2006 script uh for Wonder Woman uh uh introduced the the Wonder Woman Diana Diana yeah. Prince angle the door uh Steve Trevor of course we start with Trevor Treve Strever, Treve Stepper, uh, 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 crashes a plane. Uh, he's landed on an island. What angle? The door as it is pulled off its hinges, and there stands the silhouetted girl in an archaic white shift, peering into the plane as the door continues to twirl in air behind her, finally dropping out of sight as she steps tentatively into the plane, and we hear a distant splash. Close on the girl. <laughs> new paragraph to say she is beautiful is almost to miss the point she is elemental as natural and wild as the luminous flora surrounding her dark hair waterfalls to her shoulders in soft arcs and curls her body is curvaceous but taut as a drawn bow she wears burnished metal bracelets on both wrists wide and intricately detailed her shift is of another era we'd call it ancient greek she is barefoot and like you can't like mm. that's not how like Zack Snyder in, in, introduces uh, 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 Wonder Woman in, in BVS is essentially like here is this other force who is doing a better job investigating than Batman, and then when all shit has gone to to hell, saves the world. Yeah, and I mean he, I mean Snyder introduces her in this movie, standing on a statue like like that like represents justice and, and and like about to stop a bank robbery. Uh, and then she just does, oh man. Yeah. And so, as I was saying, the, 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 like, the, the opening of Whedon's version is the Kids for Podcast. Yeah. I mean, the opening of Snyder's version is the end, is like the end of Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice played in extreme slow motion where you see Superman dying for several minutes, like impale, impaled on a, on a kryptonite stake that's also impaled in Doomsday. Yeah. And we start, uh, and we start an incredible close up on the stake and zoom out yeah as if they were giant greek statues yeah and and you see like you see you, you see like henry cavill's mouth and like sound waves are coming out of his mouth as as his like as as his like godlike death scream physically changes the world yeah including waking up a mother bot. yeah yeah and and yeah his 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 approach to to these characters is like uh, uh, in, in the previous movies haven't been a super huge fan of his of his take on these characters, but like here, I fucking get it. Yes. I get what he's going for, and I am in on it. I, I like, yeah. His his his. I finally get the gigantic mythic archetypes that he's going for, and how and how those archetypes are like kind of brought into conflict with each other. And it's it, it feels good to like finally get like what he's going for with his characters. Well, and I I because I yeah I th- I think. The the core problem with the whole thing is doing it as a sequence of films, hmm. um, because uh, I still I yeah I this is I me enjoying the Snyder Cut is not me forgiving Man of Steel yeah. uh, and especially Batman vs Superman, um, and because I think those two films would are fine build up to this a fine backstory and it is kind of that thing of like. <laughs> 
I what should have happened, and I want to be clear, I do not think this should have happened. Is that that uh, is that DC should have given Zack Snyder two billion dollars, <laughs> and he made all five films at once, right? Yeah, and then they drop like a Netflix season because then it's like you don't have to go see a Superman film about how. Uh, Kevin Costner telling Superman that humans are not worth saving because he's a god Jesus. Yeah. Uh, um, because knowing that in a film and a half's time, you are going to see the film question that by replaying those moments almost exactly, mm. except he is now uh, a, a revenant angel come back wrong to be used as a tool to save people. And it's like, the, especially Man of Steel and especially, especially Batman versus Superman are, are someone doing a bunch of setup that on its own is not right. Yeah. It is, it, it is, it's like if a serious man had started with a whole Dybbuk film, you know? <laughs> and, and yeah, no, and, and now it makes me kind of sad that, you know, like yeah, that, that yeah. didn't happen, but it, it is like, oh no, you do. He did actually, the, the thing Snyder was posing early on were things he was actually going to explore rather than his point. His, yeah. his his point was in how those ideas change. Yeah, well, I've definitely been guilty of this. People often think of Zack Snyder as like as like a dumb filmmaker. I and and people people take him very much at like face value. And like there's of course the, the, the whole thing about like oh you know oh he, he's wanted to make a he's always wanted to do like an adaptation of a Fountainhead. He must be like a crazy libertarian. But like if you actually hear him talk about his idea for his version of a Fountainhead. Like, he talks about how, like, that book is fucking nuts. Yeah. And, like, part of what draws him to it is, like, that he thinks that ideology is crazy, but it's interesting to explore in a film. Um, and he also absolutely agree. And I think a lot of, uh, I need to shift my understanding of Zack Snyder because I, 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 I will admit, for a long time I have thought he is a dumb filmmaker. Yeah. But also, he made Dawn of the Dead, which is n- not a bad film, but is an exercise in taking a deeply thematic horror film and making it a deeply aesthetic one. Yeah. Uh, and, and 300, which is a film that is all aesthetic to both its benefit and uh, weakness. Yeah. Uh, um, and like, and then making Watchmen, which is, I kind of think an impossible task, but he also has the David Fincher problem, which is that there is such an identifiable look to his film, which isn't like, I'm not I'm not out here saying that every filmmaker should make every film looking entirely different but because like cuz Fincher's style is cold perfect symmetrical distant gray washed out yeah um and, and putting that on all these different stories putting that on Gone Girl works cuz that's how you want to see that but putting that on Benjamin Button you're like no this is about time and love right, and yeah, yeah. humans I don't want to feel distant I want to be in there and Snyder, the style that was developed from like, yeah, what if zombies ran, man? Even though zombies ran in the original Dawn of the Dead, just less. But anyway, and what if, you know, the we watched the men? And what if, like, there are moments in this film that are almost identical to like, this is madness, no, this is Sparta. Yeah, yeah. Like, aesthetically. And, and, and that he has used that look and that approach which can be so pleasurable. Like 300 is not a film I would recommend. Seeing that 2006 and reading Cinema's Courtney, I was just a drill. Like, yeah. oh, th- fuck, this is so good. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. oh, sh- yeah, bah! you know? And, and so it is not unfair to look at him shooting Superman fighting Zod 
and destroying a city in exactly the same way and go like, oh no, he thinks this is cool. Yeah, yeah. This is how he shows us. And it's a problem with Sucker Punch. And so we didn't have the expected context. I don't think it is that unfair to mm. what I'm saying. Right, yeah. We got the scene where, where Superman does a cool death scream. After that, it cuts to some sadness montages, which also happens in the Whedon cut. Uh, but like it's a different, it's like a different approach to the sadness montage. In in, in the Whedon cut, you see like you know like crime is on the rise and people are on the streets and everyone's sad because Superman's dead and all the lights gone out of the world. And in, in, in this one, it mainly focuses on on it mainly focuses on on Lois Lane and uh, 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 and and Martha Kent. The Whedon version of this scene is everyone in the world being sad for Superman's dead, even though the past two movies have been about how. A lot of people really didn't like Superman. Yeah. I mean, in this one, it's like, no, these two people who were incredibly close to him and loved him and knew him in a way that no one else did, they are sad about him being dead. And it feels weird that the Zack Snyder version of, of the scene is, like, more, like, human and more grounded than the, than the Whedon version. Well, and especially because the, the Whedon scene is so deliberately made to seem like his Zack Snyder Yeah, scene. yes, yes. Because uh, it's all it's all slow mo and people looking mournfully at yeah. each other. I mean, it does raise the question of this film's relationship to, especially Lois and Martha, which is to kind of use them as sadness tokens. And, and yeah, uh, I think the strongest argument against this film is that it does not do right by its women, mm. um, well, its non non male cast, uh, in that like probably the most prominently featured one is played by a uh, serial abuser, Amber Heard, including scenes recently shot with Amber Heard where you're like, you, you had a choice and you were like, let's include Amber Heard. And like, there's a twist later that Ma- uh, Martha in a whole scene um, was a man all along in a scene, specifically a Martian man hunter. But that that's the critique of the film I buy the most. The critique of the film I buy the least is people who see two films a year live tweeting that starts with the title that says this film is presented in 4-3 to keep Zack Snyder's vision being like, oh, check out this pretentious shit. And yeah. it's like, what the, what? No. Yeah, that's fine. I, <laughs> that's, 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 that's fine approaching yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it looks good. Yeah. Uh, it, it, he, sh- he shot the whole thing in open mat 4-3 for mm. good IMAX formatting and they're releasing in the, in this form so everyone gets the IMAX formatting yeah and like it does look kind of weird but that's because we are programmed to associate that ratio with either television or the lighthouse or first cow yeah and so when this sadness montage of Lost Lane and Mark Kent happens I did initially kind of like react against it because it uses one of my favorite songs of all time yeah. and I, I was which is the song Distant Sky by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds uh which I think is just like an incredibly beautiful and heartbreaking song and then i was like uh fucking zack snyder is using this song that i love so much and then i like half of a song i remembered like oh yeah this song is from like nick cave's album about like reckoning with the 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 death of his teenage son which which is like which is very similar to what to what zack snyder was doing when he was editing this cut of the film and and i think like i was immediately like oh right yeah yeah, and like I have a like particular emotional reaction to a song, and that doesn't mean that Zack Snyder isn't also like can't also feel the same thing about the song. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I think, uh, uh, and again, it's another interesting thing. We're kind of like the legacy 
of of Snyder works against the film in some yeah. ways, which is that his history of needle drops is, is like very much like someone kicking down a door chucking on a record and being like check out how sick this lick is yeah, and yeah. then playing air guitar uh, and which was something that uh, the Whedon cut replicated and then when we see him play against moments where otherwise there would be thrashing guitars or sweet dreams by yeah. rhythmic it is like the the scene i talk about being the most snyder thing in the Whedon cut which is Aquaman in our previous episode in the first half of this episode <laughs> uh, in 15a which is uh, Aquaman going into the sea drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels throwing it in in slow motion and then being taken up by the waves yeah which in that was I don't know probably scored by like chop suey <laughs> <laughs> um yeah in in, in in this version it is scored by another Nick Cave song yeah. the song the song there is a kingdom uh, from uh, from from a boatman's call, like he like Snyder is going all in on 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 the saddest Nick Cave albums, <laughs> and like yeah, by the time it gets to that scene, I'm like, you know, I'm fucking in on this now. Yeah, no, like it the, sells the, the like the yeah. weight of that moment. Yeah, and 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 like the and like the shots of Aquaman on on the pier. Be- with, with like waves like crashing in from each side, and it's like a, it's like a curtain of water that closes over him, like. It's like fuck yes. Well, this is so good. Well, and it's because like the pitch of Aquaman in this version of the film is like here is the, the, the he should be the king of Atlantis, but he's a lonely man who can only do his best. Yeah, and even at that, he fails. When that's cut into the Whedon cut, it's just like here's snarky Broman. Yeah, with saying his, my man with his with his dude rock, and in this it is like that same sequence, but with. The Nick Cave song, it's like, oh no, that's the interiority of the moment. And it it works and I hate it. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> this podcast would be so much more fun if we could be like, yeah, oh my God, can you believe he added yeah. so much? <laughs> but no, oh no, it's it's good. Yeah, like the 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 the, the last like note that I took on the movie just said Aquaman on the pier is real cool. Yeah. I mean after that, I was kinda like too engaged with most of the movie to take notes. And the the shape of the film is general-ishly the same. The major plot addition um, is that Steppenwolf now reports back to Desaad, uh, uh who works with Darkseid. Yeah. Who, uh, uh, in 2021, we have to say, is like Thanos, even though in terms of the character's uh, conceptions, it is the other way around. Yeah. Um, and... and in terms of the, the the text, in terms of the comics, like Thanos is a poor copy of Darkseid. Yeah. Uh, and like Darkseid is interesting. But but, but but the MCU just managed to get there first. Yeah. And, and that, I'm I'm still not happy with what they've done with Mother Boxes, but I kind of get they have to have right. a plot token. Because the idea of Mother Boxes is, which is kind of in this film more, is that they're, they're just points of technology. They're like super phones. Like everyone right. has them. They're not doomsday devices, mm. but yeah. So uh, 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 yeah. So the, the 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 plot of the film is essentially like ba- like Batman uh, knows that something is coming. There is some sort of like alien intelligence that is focused in on Earth and is coming to uh, is coming is coming to 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 destroy it. Yeah, uh, and, and, and in this version, it's because Lex Luthor talked to him about it. Yeah, uh, and warned him of it because Lex Luthor saw a vision of it 
uh, when he was in the pool, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, the it, in the pool in in Superman ship where when he made Doomsday. Uh, and the uh, and in the Whedon cut, it's because you know he beating up the Mind Hunter and oh right, yeah, yeah, that, that's why that happened. Yeah, fuck. no, Parademons have been around. It just doesn't. Yeah. It just yeah, the the. Yeah, like Whedon had a tough job cutting this film down to two hours and making it lighter. But it does seem like the the way you make this film shorter is not by changing the plot. It is just by speeding everything up. Yeah. And, and by shifting the plot, it just seems much less. It, it You can feel the hackiness of it. You can feel how things don't quite connect. Yeah. When there are like, we're, we're introduced to The Flash uh, uh, where he's he's interviewing for a job at a pet shop. Yeah, because his his, uh, his his dad uh, currently played by Billy Crudup, but uh, is uh, in in future movies will be played by Ron Livingston. Office spaces, Ron. Livingston. Yeah, uh, uh, Joe Swanberg's drinking buddies is Ron Livingston. Search Party, the second best show on TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so he's he's uh, he he's gone to see his dad in jail and and talk to him because he's interested in like uh, he he believes his dad was like. Kind of falsely convicted and is, and wants to uh, wants to find some way to get his dad released. And his dad basically says, "No, like don't fucking worry about me. My 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 life, like my 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 life's fucking done. I don't want you wasting your life." Well, and and, and this is one of the many scenes that has been extended to gesture at a lot of like, oh, there, this is a story for another time. Yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and Billy Crudup tells his son, you know, go go get like a real job and stop fucking worrying about me. Yeah. And uh, so in in the like next scene, uh, uh, what his name is ba- 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 Barry Allen, right? Is a Flash. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, ba- ba- Barry is going to a pet store uh, to interview for a job, and he he's still irritating in this, but he's not nearly as irritating as in the Whedon version. Well, and I think a lot of his being irritating now is that he's Ezra Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and we've got to talk about Ezra Miller. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, we don't. But uh, there is like I think this film does a better job of realizing that Ezra Miller's charm is not in delivering one-liners, but in being faintly in being the human in the room. Yeah, and, and being faintly dazed and a little silly. But like the thing he does not have in this is actual joke. Yeah, he what? he doesn't have his fucking brunch monologue, which is one of the worst moments in cinema. <laughs> That's in- inaccurate. <laughs> that is, let's not come. Can't let's. There's a farm, and let's come. Anyway, but yeah, he's interviewing, and he sees he sees a a a, a woman, and is like, oh, she she's attractive, mm. uh, uh, and um, but then she's almost hit by a um, yeah, v- v- delivery truck. Yeah, there, there, there is a there is a, a truck speeding along. A truck driver is eating a burger yeah. while he is driving. He drops the burger. Uh, down into uh, down into like where the, the like pedals are, and decides to pick up the burger because like this is still eatable. It's not. Well, once you, that, like that's that's the that's the filthiest pl- place in your car. That that burger's done. But you know he goes to pick it up and he's not looking. And he speeds through an intersection and he he basically like, t- he t bones this woman's car and she goes like flying out of it. And then we see uh, some fucking flash slow mo, which in this movie uh, is good. Well, and, and the, which brings us to like I think almost the biggest damage Whedon did to this film, which I'm I'm sure was pushed on him from yeah. elsewhere. Though also like Joss Whedon unwantedly pushing things on people is not outside of his character. No. I understand. Um, 
uh, is the heavy regrading of footage mm. uh, and both the flash sequences and people underwater talking in uh, in Aquaman people just talk underwater because kind of fucking obviously it's Aquaman you know no one's mad about that but yeah in this they create air bubbles and in in Joss Whedon Zack Snyder's Justice League the Snyder cut the Whedon cut um it just looks a bit silly you're like this just seems an inconvenience uh, 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 and in in uh, the flash slow-mo sequences, uh, it just looks a bit over, and it looks like it was trying too hard to aim towards the Quicksilver scenes. Right, yeah. Um, which, like, it's hard to not make that comparison, but, like, with this bright kind of pop future thing, where it is now about, a me- like, the world juddering and this unstoppable, insane force moving through it through kind of darkness and light and like i like that when he there's a point where he's running along and he stops but because of course how momentum works like the world the ground ripples up mm. and smashes underneath him and like talking in air bubbles when you see it with snyder's gray and you're like oh these are two figures in storms uh, yeah, of chaotic yeah. water and then you cut to exterior shots of like these angry spheres underwater you're like oh no i get what this is as an image yeah like and it is so sad but yeah he say he saves a woman who presumably we will know as iris um his future wife is this when we get cyborg we that- we've seen cyborg mm-hmm. once oh and it is uh, uh kind of the first major action beat is uh steppenwolf and the parademons attacking wonder woman oh, island right. to yeah. steal the mother box there that has woken up and it's in many ways the same as in the Whedon cut, but like I think a very telling addition is at the end when they, uh, uh, when uh, Connie Nielsen escapes uh, uh, the whole of like the holding plant, the building that was holding the mother box, yeah, full of people crashes into the ground and is destroyed. Yeah, so the building was like full, full of like parademons and Steppenwolf, but it's also full of full of Amazons, and they have like they have like purposely like trapped themselves in this building and like. And drop themselves into the sea in order yeah. to in order to like try and save the rest of their island. And there is like a genuine sense of like loss there, well, which there just isn't. There like tons of Amazons still die in the in the weed cut. There's no there's no sense of loss. Well, and it is because because you're like on okay, this is fucking bad. Like <laughs> shit. Like in in a way that so much of the crimes of the plot of the of the Whedon film is that it just feels like a bunch of comic book characters in a comic book plot that you know they have to yeah, stop yeah. X getting the tokens um, and, or else he'll do bad things, shoot blue beam, you know? Yeah. But in this it is like, oh no, like apocalypse is coming to 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 um, to, to heaven and the gods are panicking, yeah. which is the thing DC can do that Marvel mm. can't. Um, because Marvel's whole point is that they're all people. Super genius people, but people. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, so that happens. Uh, there's a bit of like, will Wonder Woman join? Won't Wonder Woman join? Uh, Batman goes to recruit Aquaman. That's as it was in the Justice League. Um, but uh, then we, we're introduced to Barry. Batman reduces Barry Allen. Then we meet Victor Stone, yeah. who who is cyborg. Um, yeah, uh, he, he's he's played by Ray Fisher, a famous uh, Joss Whedon hater. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, understandably, understandably so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, ju- not understandably, justifiably yes. so. Yeah, and like Ray Fisher is a large reason why this kind of a movie kind of got to exist because he like he started speaking out about like 
how fucking terrible Joss Whedon was to him on on, on set when they were doing the reshoots, yeah. and that, that that was like a kind of like real like galvanizing factor in 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 not, in not only like people like kind of demanding that this version of the film uh, be released like kind of honor Cyborg's character more, but also like get people starting to fucking talk about Joss Whedon and all the shit he's been doing for years. Uh, um, which like as a you know like someone who's been a fan of Joss Whedon for like the better for like over a decade, uh, devastating to hear, but uh, not not, have, not not entirely unsurprising. Yeah, you can love the work and hate the artist. Mm. Yeah, you can. Do a lot. Okay, you can. Mm. Yes. Mm. Um, can I, Finn? I'm giving you permission. Mm. Um, and I think, and it is interesting because like a core part of the the narrative, uh, uh the 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 anti um. God, what is his name? I just you just said it. Ray Fisher Ray narrative Fisher, yeah. is is because you know Ray Fisher was getting angry on set at the changes Joss Whedon were making. Mm. Um, and, 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 and the changes Joss Whedon was making was like making him say booyah. Well, and like cutting his he he his his plot is like uh, uh imagine if you woke up one day and were Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, Robo Frankenstein. Yeah, he he he's got like a a good like thirty five minutes of this movie that is just on him. Yeah, and it's just about like it's just about cyb it's just about like cyborg trying to like grapple with the fact that he is not he is not like human anymore, yeah. and that he is now kind of like weird and monstrous and shouldn't fully be alive, but somehow is, and he he like hates his father for it and all all, all this stuff and and like learning how to like use his his new abilities to to help people and that stuff's all it's all super compelling well and like fisher is the person who by far and away got the worst end of it and yeah. the weed in cut because this this just shows how much of like how even just recontextualizing footage can make someone look like a bad actor yeah because he fucking sells that and it puts cyborg and like, like, and, and it may seem ridiculous. And like, let's say in the, the version of this film that would have been in cinemas, this wouldn't be thirty-five minutes; mm. it would be fifteen. Mm, but yeah. it, but it, you'd still get it. And it, but it, what it underlines is, is that this whole relationship within the Justice League is that all six of the members uh, have different relationship to their own godhood. Yeah. Uh, in that, like, Batman is a human who uh, wants to buy godhood. Cyborg is a man who's forced into godhood and does not want it. And um, Aquaman is a god who wants to be a man and Flash is a man who... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, and then there's Superman who who just is a god. Anyway. Um, and, and without that, Cyborg just feels like Hawkeye. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, he, he he's just like another guy who is there for essentially no reason. Like, oh, he, he does some computer stuff at one point. Yeah. Yeah, and he, uh, he he has he has no character in the Whedon version, and, and it doesn't help that the his CGI is still not great, no. but it is also in the kind of like two face school where you're looking yeah. at something, you're know, like, I understand that that's impossible, so there's no way I my brain will ever believe it. Yeah, um, and it's not bad. I've seen a lot of complaints against this film that the CGI doesn't look finished, and I'm just like, no, just accept that expressionism is an acceptable. Approach visually, things yeah. don't like. I I understand that Disney will soon be like the poster for greed, a giant hand hovering over all of us. But like, don't doesn't have to look fucking realistic. Mm. Doesn't yeah, like yeah. Like, there is one moment in the cyborg sequence where he like 
goes into sort of like brain computer space. There's this sort of like 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 matrix sort of like conceptual world where he can kind of do whatever he wants. And and for, for like first time he goes, he he went into there. I was like, yeah, this is kind of like dumb and shitty. But like by by the second or third time he was in there, like it like that 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 space like made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. It's just doing a good job of like, what does the inconceivable look like? Yeah, you know, it's it's the special effects for the tulpas in 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 Twin Peaks: The Return. Yeah, which like, is like Frank Silver's face on a ball, or like just hard cuts from from uh, from. Uh, Karma Glocklin to Karma Glocklin's head with smoke badly coming out of it, and yeah. then a still image of a golden ball <laughs> emerging. And it's like there is something in pushing into the uncanniness of special effects in a in a way to express the inexpressible, which yeah. is uh, really useful. But yeah, this is we're now in the middle run, which is just uh, uh, Batman gets intel from an amazingly wigged J.K. Simmons as, oh, <laughs> as Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, when. <laughs> So yeah, in in in, in the wind cut, you 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 don't really see J.K. Simmons' hair at all. No, but because like the, the like one scene of him is like on a rooftop at night. Yeah, but in, but in this fucking movie, there's a scene where like it where like it pans up on J.K. Simmons' face, and you see his he's he's got like. He, like he's got like 1990s boy band hair where it's it's, it's it's like kind of like flops forward at the front yeah. and it's like it's it's still it's also kind of blonde it's like was was not expecting that from jk simmons uh incredible choice on someone's part and, and it's like it's the funniest it's the funniest joke in the movie <laughs> you're not wrong yeah uh um but so they they go to under gotham harbor where Steppenwolf is doing something. They fight him. Right, That's right. when Aquaman, Aquaman chooses to join them. And- yeah, because uh, 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 because the, the uh, uh, Cyborg's dad uh, works with uh, Star Labs, which is the company that has been like uh, contracted to work on uh, uh, Superman's old ship and to like investigate it yeah. and and figure out what's going on with that. And, 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 and just- he he also had uh, he also had one of the mother boxes, which is what he used to uh, uh, to, to 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 like bring the son back to life. Uh, and, and his father's assistant is Ryan Choi, played by Ryan Zeng, who is just there to go on to become uh, the Atom in a spin-off film. Yeah, um, but it. It's also just nice that all almost all of the characters this film adds are people of color. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, because uh, so Cyborg's dad is played by Joe Morton, uh, who is eternally playing scientists in movies and TV shows. Yeah, uh, well, scientists who create robots and regret it. Yeah, um, uh, but, but yeah. So, um, what, what one of the things throughout the movie is that Steppenwolf is sending out parademons to 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 like hunt down to hunt down the mother boxes. Well, they get there's a battle uh, in Atlantis where they get that one, yeah. and then it's like uh, they her uh, 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 cyborg and cyborg's dad have done something to cloak the third mother box, which they have. well, I, I think that, that 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 one just like hasn't woken up yet, and like it, it, it uh, I don't know. yeah, no, it yeah. does, it, yeah, shmoo shmoo shmoo, yeah, um, uh, yeah, so uh, when when cyborg like kind of fully uh, 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 like it, it accepts his 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 new role as like a superhero god person he 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 takes the he takes mother box uh he, t- he takes the mother box uh to uh, uh to the grave uh where uh where where uh where he was supposedly uh buried with uh side by side with with with, with his mother he buries the mother box in his mother's grave yeah uh which is that's 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 a Zack snyder metaphor but which is like you, yeah if you're making an operatic film yeah yeah 
where the plot is the man who murdered God ultimately has to resurrect God as the devil to fight Satan. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Cool, sweet ass. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so he, he, he takes the mother box, he buries it, but the, 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 the parademons still kind of like, can, can, can like smell it on Joe Morton and they, they kidnap him and they take him back to Steppenwolf. And then that's when all, all of the, that, 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 that's when all, like everyone kind of comes together for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, well, Bat- and, and, yeah, and Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, The Flash, uh, uh, Cyborg, and eventually Aquaman all come together to do this like raid on Steppenwolf's headquarters. They save all the civilians. Well, no, uh, on the underwater place where they're holding, because Steppenwolf has already set up his headquarters in the place oh, right, right, right. that is implied to be, but not stated to be Shinobi. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he's he's holding prisoners in in like a building in in like Gotham City or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, un- underneath all... Gotham Harbor. Well, because well, that's why it floods. Well, yeah, but they they like start at the top of the tower oh, yeah. and they, they go underneath. Yeah. But um, yeah. So there's a there's a big fight with Steppenwolf and the Parademons, which in the Whedon version is uh, not enjoyable, and in this one it's it's pretty fun. Well, because uh, they've added Steppenwolf to it, I believe. Right. Yeah. Plus, I'm not going to go back and check. Yeah. No, I'm not. But I, 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 I feel like Steppenwolf wasn't in the in, wasn't in the first one. Well, and, and much more clearly this time, a they're there to save the dad. Yes. Um, and, and which maybe they were last time. But Who can beca- tell? But because we have Victor Stone's arc, and even within his arc, a key element is his conflicted relationship with his dad. Yeah. Um, which is I think played. Like, this film is an opera. This film is a Wagnerian opera, uh, uh, but less fascist than Wagner. <laughs> a little. Um, <laughs> and, and so, like, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay yeah. with, like, I, I have become a god, and yet my father does not love me. Like, I, I buy it as a, as a set of feelings for a character. But, yeah, this this fight uh, that, that becomes the, the fight that's slowly flooding, just having a plot intention and having, like, their goal to save Morton and get out, and then everything is looking doomed, but they see how powerful... Um, Aquaman. No, no, oh, no. Uh, Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf is. And, and, and overwhelmed, it's almost flood. Aquaman comes in at the last minute. This is how he joins the team, by holding back the waves, and it, it just yeah. looks dope. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff in this movie, which is just not doing some like Lord of the Rings stuff. Yeah. There's a big battle between like some evil invaders who are basically orcs, and then like an, an alliance of of humans and oh, yeah. magic people, and then in, in this it's just for like you will not pass thing, except it's Aquaman and water instead of Gandalf and a Balrog, and, and it's sweet as yeah. Then yeah, the team is all together. They're like, oh, great, this is what we got to do. Oh no, what is the Motherbox thing? Uh, Wonder Woman explains the backstory, which is also in the Whedon cut. You know, there was an alliance of heroes, blah, blah, blah. It, but, it in, but in the like flashback to the battle in the Whedon version, do they show Darkseid at that battle? Uh, he is in the background. Oh, okay. like, right. he It's one of those things where like, if you look for him, he's there. Yeah. But he's he's not focused on. Yeah, but in, in, in this version, he, like, he he is the like Sauron figure. He like he, he is the kind of like, focal point of, of, of this battle. Yeah. And... And there's a thing where he like, he like smashes a club, like he smashes like an axe into the ground and discovers the anti-life equation or whatever. No, that's Steppenwolf later. Well, no, but no, but like during during that battle sequence, like he like he does. Oh, yeah, it's not yeah. happens. You're yeah, right, happens I'm twice. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we also at this point, this is where Victor Stone makes clear his backstory. Like all of the stuff with him up until this point have been like this guy is a robot. 
what happened. He has this mother box. He's conflicted mm. about being a robot. He has a weird relationship with his dad. And this is gives us the backstory to that backstory, which is um, uh, he turned me into a robot to save me after I was in a car accident. Yeah. Um, and also... And, in, and the car accident is what killed his mum. Yeah. yeah. And there was a... Te- uh, uh, and also, I think that's the point where we get a lot of really sweet as him playing American football in the snow slow motion. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, which is just pure aesthetic. <laughs> uh, uh, then, uh, yeah, then... But they're like, but Steppenwolf is too powerful. There's nothing that can defeat him. And they're like, oh, I know someone who can. Superman. We should bring him back to life. Because that's what mother boxes can do. Yeah. Oh, too bad Sebenwolf's got the mother boxes. Actually, no, Cyborg's got one. Yeah, so they go get the mother box. They go uh, exhume uh, Superman's corpse. They they break into Star Labs, and, and including uh, a nice moment, like the first upbeat moment between Cyborg and his dad, where Cyborg... His dad lets them in. Yeah. Um. And yeah, they, they, they've, they've like set off the alarm to 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 like get everyone out of the building. And Joe, Joe Morton's the last person, and and he's like talking to the, to the people outside on a walkie-talkie. And he says, "You know, I think I know what the problem is. Oh, it's a it's a false alarm. Everyone can come back." And then the door opens, and he sees Cyborg there. He realizes what they're doing, and and he like he says, "No one comes back in without my say so." And, and yeah. yeah, so he he gives cover to his son to 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 do the stuff that he needs to do. And uh, it, it lands. Yeah. It, it lands for me. And so, yeah, they go into Superman's spaceship, a ship that was in a couple of shots in Man of Steel. And I was like, we'll never be back here. Um, no, you're going to be mm. there forever. Yeah, it's one of the main sets of the next two movies. Uh, 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 and then, uh, so, de- yeah, it's the same setup as in the Whedon cut. They, they need yeah. to drop the box uh, into the, the pool that Doomsday was born yeah. out of, which yeah. has Superman's corpse in it. And Flash has to hit it with, flash lightning but this time there's a lot more stress where flash is like i have to run close to the speed of light to do this yeah and and and, and like weird time dilation stuff happens yeah. when 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 i do that well, yeah which, which, there's there's in, in the wind cut it's just they drop the box flash runs in he touches the box at the second it touches water everything's fine yeah and like not 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 a super interesting scene yeah. in this one flash like mistimes it and the, the and the, the box like hits the water, and I was like, "What? What's going on? You're supposed to touch it when?" Yeah, <laughs> Yufra is doing the tenet hand symbol. Uh, so um, there's yeah. only one thing I like more than footage going forwards, and it is footage in reverse. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, the, the the box goes into the water. It seems like Flash has mistimed it, and then we we go it, like cuts back to Flash, and we we see we see him again as like. As like he approaches the speed of light and time begins to go weird, it cuts back to the box and we see like time reverse and it comes out of the water and then goes back down again and and the flash touches it at the right moment. Uh, and, and also, and it's, some it's of, so satisfying. Uh, and and the flash in uh, at flash speed is lightning is all around him. Yeah. And one of the bits of lightning strikes cyborg, who then has a a vision of an apocalyptic world. Right, right. Um, where we see a dead Green Lantern, Kilowog. Yeah, who by all accounts, who was played by Michael Clark Duncan in the Green Lantern movie, yeah, and, and was supposed to be the whole thing of uh, unite the seven when Justice League was announced. So we're going to unite the seven members yeah. of the Justice League. Um, apparently, this is uh, but it was supposed to be Killer Wog, 
as as a Green Lantern who's an right. alien Green Lantern. Yeah, and and, and in, in the like Lord of the Rings flashback, you, you there, 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 there are some Green Lanterns in the sky who are like helping out in the yeah, fight. Yeah, but that's also true in the yeah. Cut. Um, and but like when uh, uh, Steppenwolf is reporting to Desaad, he's like, "There are no lanterns here. There's not a Kryptonian. Easy pickings." Yeah. Um, because there's a whole drama between Steppenwolf and Desaad and Darkseid, but it's shmoosh Yeah. Uh, uh, but so yeah. they they resurrect Superman. Uh, once the 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 fight between the Justice League and Superman is kind of plays out pretty much the same. Yeah, I, I think this this is still not a fantastic scene like of of the action scenes of the film i think this is this is my least favorite i yes and and like and like partially because it like there there are some like weird continuity stuff where like the fight happens again at the memorial to the victims of zod and superman's fight in man of steel but so in the weeden cut lois lane is off somewhere i mean superman comes back to life i mean she like comes down to the monument and she like there's no Clark, it's me. Uh, but in in this one, she's it's explicitly shown that she's already at the monument before, like when Superman is brought back to life, and, and, and then Superman goes to the monument. She's not there. Yeah. Then there's like ten minutes of fighting, and then she comes back, and there yeah. that makes makes no sense. And I don't uh, know why they did that. I, and and, it, and and it's worth uh, mentioning that the reason she's there is that she's had a conversation with Clark's mum, Martha, who who's like, we just need to move on yeah no like maybe just go say your last goodbye to him like mm. and, and at the end of that scene uh, martha steps out of lois's apartment and reveals that it, it wasn't martha it was the martian manhunter who then transforms into harry lennox from yeah. the previous two snyder films yeah well, so he was just like a random general yeah so it, just nice to see some Harry Lennox. Yeah. Uh, but so he's kind of like a puppet no, no, not Not playing a president for once. <laughs> um, do you think like him, Morgan Freeman, and Dennis Haybert have like the Black Presidents <laughs> yeah, Club? Yeah. Like, they, they, like, all three of, like, all three of those guys like voted against Obama because like if he gets in, our career is over. <laughs> uh, good joke. Mm. Um, uh, but anyway, so... Somewhere around this point, Steppenwolf learns. Uh, uh, oh, he has an argument with Desaad because it, it's revealed that Steppenwolf fucked up in the past, and yeah. he's still paying torment. He owes uh, Darkseid fifty thousand words. Worlds? No, words. He doesn't have to write a thesis. It's just a short novel. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, debatably a novel or a novella. No, mm. uh, fifty thousand words. So he goes. He has a bit of a tantrum uh, and uses his sweet as axe to smash the ground under which he sees the this weird. Weird um, symbols. Symbols. And so next time he's talking to Desaad, he's like, I have found it. I have found the anti-life equation. Yeah, and that's when Yufa started pumping his fists. <sighs> and, and oh, was that when you dabbed? Yes. You, yeah. was, no, because earlier, uh, one of the things oh, I said at the beginning was like, what I like about this is the real sense there might be discussion of the anti-life equation. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then when the anti-life equation was mentioned, Yufa started dabbing. <laughs> It's what I do reflexively when yeah. I feel victories. Um, you know, when I get a five-point answer correct on only connect, I dab. Life is terrible. Uh, life is a, what have I become, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, uh, yeah, the interlife equation being, of course, uh, the equation that gives someone control over all of life. It's what Darkseid mm. wants. Darkseid just keeps talking about how much he loves anti-life, <laughs> which is both an incredibly threatening thing and does sound like an elderly Swedish person talking about a suicide pill. Um, you can kill you. 
itself there. I wasn't, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and at Steppenwolf's base, they've made a big dome over it, big yeah. protective dome, uh, prefiguring that after blue beams shooting into the sky, the next uh, big superhero cliche would be big shields. Mm. And so basically they got to be like, Okay, we've got to break into this place. He's got the three boxes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because while they're fighting Superman, uh, Steppenwolf comes down in, in a in a boom tube yeah. and takes the uh, takes from takes from other box from Superman's ship. They while never explicitly say boom tube in this film, and don't that, they? That knocks half a star off it for me. Oh, I thought they did. So yeah. So uh, he has all three of them of the mother boxes now, and he can use them to create. Uh, oh, jo- and Joe Morton sacrifices himself. Oh, right. yes, he does. To put a tracer on the mother box. Yeah, because w- w- when you fire a laser at it, it, it heats up so much that it becomes like the the hottest thing in in like the the single hottest thing on earth. Yeah. And and so he locks himself in like a laser cage with with it. Uh, so it- laser cage is my third favorite post-punk band yeah. so when when steppenwolf um uh, t- t- takes from takes from takes the mother box away uh batman and cyborg are like oh he made it super hot so we can use like satellites to check for like uh for, to check for, like temperature anomalies yeah. and find out where his base is which they 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 don't do the, do they do that in the in the whedon cut how 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 do they find out where his base is in the whedon cut yeah yeah I mean, like, I'm, I'm pretty okay. sure. I'm pretty sure that's what we thought while we were watching the Weed Cut. Is who cares how they find out where his base is? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so they do that. Uh, he has all three boxes now, so he can make what's called the Unity. Yeah. Uh, which is a weapon which can be used to like cleanse an entire world and fire. Yeah. Uh, which they don't want to have happen, but Steppenwolf does. Uh, and, and the world being destroyed in a single moment in fire is a recurring image in the flash forwards yeah. to the apocalyptic world in both BVS and earlier in Cyborg's vision. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So they have to go to Chernobyl, uh, and save a Russian family. No, they don't. No. The Russian family no longer there. Yeah. They cut, cut, cut out Joss Whedon's best joke. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. Um, but yeah, they're like, we, we got to take this on. And then they have, uh, uh interesting and short meeting about like, Okay, this is what we got to do. This is what all of our specific skill sets are. Yeah. This is how we're going to solve the situation. Yeah, you, you see them make a plan and then execute the plan. And, and, and like all good heist films, the plan, because we've heard the plan, of course, the plan goes wrong. But like when, in just Whedon, in, in the Whedon cut, when it is just, oh, Batman's just in there shooting and they're flying around yeah, and they don't know. And, it is almost incoherent in the, in the Whedon version. Like people just show up and do stuff and there is, there is never any reason why people are doing stuff. Or in the places that they're in to do the things, but yeah, so so it, it's it's they're going into it. Superman has gone back to Smallville, yeah, uh, and it is unclear whether he's gonna rejoin the team, yeah, and it's it's unclear whether he like fully remembers who he is and 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 any of that stuff. There there is a nice when 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 Lois comes in at the end of a fight, he starts fighting and he takes her and flies back to Kansas. There, there is uh, uh, and this is we're now in the sequence where the Things Whedon changed, because, uh, yeah, like, my ultimate thesis on, on, on the Whedon cut is he was given an impossible task a very short period of time, mm. and, and he made a bunch of decisions that I think anyone would have made. Yeah. Um, the, the ones I disagree with are kind of from this point on, because one of the key things that has changed is that the sense of returned Clark Kent is that he is different. Mm. He has come back wrong. 
a little darker, a little disconnected from himself, which gives a sense of meaning and threat to the beautiful Terence Malick shots yeah. of them outside the farm, which is like the point where I was like, like for all the faults of this film and the fact that it should probably not exist at all because, you know, capitalism is a monster and superheroes are the, the most opial opiate of the masses. Um, like the fact that Zack Snyder was like, I'm going to shoot a superhero film like a Terrence Malick film yeah. is like, at least that's fucking something. Like, yeah, Kevin, there are so many things in this where I like them because I could feel Kevin Feige immediately giving a note against them. Yeah. Which is, and like, I, I, Kevin Feige is incredibly good at his job. Yes. And, and I'm not arguing against that. I'm, like, I, I'm in a wider philosophical sense. It's not that it's not an attack on the man. It's an attack on the system is what I'm saying. Yeah, and yeah, and so uh, they, uh, yeah, they, they, they all go into, they all uh, go, they all, like uh, go, go, go inside a dome. Uh, Batman flies in in like a plane and, and like shoots a bunch of rockets into it to to blow a hole in the side of it. And uh, the the Flash has to like rush. Oh, uh, they 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 knock down the like center. There's like holding the dome up, so the dome falls and they all the rest of them can get inside. Uh, then the Flash has to run around in a in a real big circle. Uh, he has to like go. He has to go as fast as he's ever gone, so that uh, Cyborg uh, can uh, get the jolt of power to separate. Yeah, yeah, because the, the the thing about the mother box is they're not like magic; they're like just super advanced technology. Yeah, change and, machine. Yeah, and, and and Cyborg can like interface with any technology if, if he has like enough power to do it. And so they need Flash to build up enough, like to to build up like enough enough of his like weird uh, speed lightning uh, to 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 like run into a cyborg and like both zap him and push him inside of a unity so that he can pull it apart from the inside. Uh, and there is a, a big fight with Steppenwolf while like, while they're trying to like kind of set this up. And there's a bunch of really sweet as Batman and the Batmobile fighting mm. uh, parademons. And I think it was around this point uh, in, uh, in, 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 in episode 15, a where I was like the pro the problem with this, with Justice, with Justice League is that this is a cut-down version of a film that was already bad. It simply does not kick ass. And I have to retract that statement because these same sequences, some of which are largely unchanged, some yeah. of which is totally, like, the Flash's role is entirely different. Yeah. Um, are, like, now with the context and the weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good now. I yeah. like it. Um, Apart from the scene where they all fight Superman, I, th I think all of the action scenes of this film work. Like, at, at, at the least, they all work. Yeah. And most of them are, like, really fun and, and kick-ass, yeah. Uh, and so, an intercut with this is, is Clark decides uh, to, to be Superman, uh, and he goes back to his ship and looks at a bunch of different uh, uh, kind of fan-bait suits before he chooses a black suit. Um, and then he, in a, in a kind of... Uh, uh, subversion of the sequence of man is steel where he flies for the first time that time he he was just hearing russell crowe's voice this time he is kevin costner and russell crowe's voices right, yeah. and he flies up and, and is now kind of this distorted thing he's going to come save the day but things are going badly yeah the the flash was like just about to uh, uh was was just about to like uh run in and 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 zap cyborg but he he gets uh, shot with a laser gun by a parademon yeah he gets like shot. He gets like shot in the leg, so he can't run anymore. Uh, I mean, uh, it all he... goes wrong. The singularity happens. And... Yeah, well, Superman gets there first. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah and, and then he he fights Steppenwolf for a bit. There's a thing which I hated in the Whedon cut, but like 
like almost almost cackled at in this one, which is like Steppenwolf goes like swing his axe at Superman. Superman grabs it, breathes cold breath on it, and shatters it. And this I was like, yeah, fuck that rules. Well, because in this you've there's like such a sense of Steppenwolf's power. Mm. It's no it no longer feels like Superman a god bullying someone <laughs> he could just push over. In this it's like, oh fuck, Superman is here and so like yeah, and, and there was, like, a really strong dynamic of, like, how everyone, like, works together to, to like, to defeat him. And everyone has a hand on the ball. Yeah. But Flash is delayed. The singularity happens. Big ball of white light. Everyone dying. Exploding. Mm-hmm. The entire world seems to just, like, stop existing. And then the Flash is able to kind of, like, displace himself in time right as it happens. Yeah, well, he's like, oh, well, now I've got to run faster than I ever have. And then he starts to run. And, and into this white void that's destroying everything around yeah. him. He starts like, Dad, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, and, and w- w- one of the things I really love about this one, which I, I, th- I think also happens in, in, in the Whedon cut, but, but they don't really focus on it as much, is the way that Ezra Miller runs as a Flash is super weird. Like, it is, he's like, moves his arms, like, swing out, like, like like more than 90 degrees in front of his, in, in front of his head. His, his legs go back super far as well. And he's like, oh, yeah, a guy who could run, like, as fast as the speed of light would not run normal. Yeah, and, I, I, like, I'm sure there's a letter somewhere from a physicist about how that's how the Flash would run yeah, if yeah. the Flash existed. But so, he, yeah, he's running towards the singularity, the end of yeah. the world. He, he's getting, like, faster and faster. And as he, like, passes, you see the world begin to rebuild itself in front of him as he's running. And you get shots of he's putting his foot out into void and the right, world yes. starts reforming underneath him yeah and, and like this entire sequence does not exist in the whedon and, version and, and it's maybe the best sequence of the film and yeah and i understand that whedon was looking at this as green screen footage but right, like yeah, yeah. i i cannot conceive of looking like if I, if I was given this or this in a working form yeah and was like cut this down to two hours i'd be like you make it a film about the flash to get to that moment yeah because that is your that is your trailer yeah, that is your that, toy. That, that's like the biggest hero moment of the movie, and it, and it is. And then we get back to inside as he's running, and time is reversing. So we see the members of the Justice League being undestroyed, yeah. bones reforming, yeah. flesh appearing on them, and it it's so good. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, it, it is. Uh, I am trying to think like of a superhero powers like uh, Doctor Strange's time loop stuff mm. uh, is 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 uh, like. It's the last time I can think of a like superhero spectacle where you're actually like, oh yeah, oh, yeah come yeah. on, holy fucking shit, sweet ass. And then we just get this incredible long shot of like Flash is running and everything is reforming. Then we see Cyborg go from atoms to metal together mm-hmm. to bone skin to they're holding the thing. The timing is perfectly right. Zap, and then Cyborg gets another vision of the future in uh, of a possible future, this apocalyptic future where uh, we see that Wonder Woman is dead. Yeah. We see that Superman is evil, parademons rule the world. But then they pull it apart, and then they kill Steppenwolf. Yeah, he's got, like, hammerhead shark head. Yeah. Part of the side of his head is, like, cut off. Yeah, but essentially, like, he's in... Superman is beating him up. Looks like he's got the other hand. At, like, end of the fight, after the, like, unity is, like, started to open, a portal to, to the planet Apocalypse opens up, and you yeah. see, like... You see Darkseid like looking out of them yeah. with his army behind them, yeah. and and he he now knows that this place has anti life. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, 
but uh, looks like uh, a Steppenwolf might have the upper hand. But oh no, what's that coming through his chest? It's a fucking trident. Yeah. Aquaman spearing him, throwing him into the air, where Wonder Woman jump jumps up and in slow motion slices his head off of her sword, and his head and body just kind of like fly through the portal and then like roll apart uh, and, and then, his, his his head rolls over to dark side who crushes it under his foot <laughs> it's so good well, it, and it is the, and this whole sequence is the promise of the premise of Zack snyder directing a superhero film yeah and like it was a mistake that we did not have this in, in Man of Steel or Batman versus yeah. Superman. And it, the system is broken where a white man gets to fail as visibly to fronts uh, to get a third and then fourth chance mm-hmm. in the remake of it. And, and, and I think that's bad. And the fact that a large engine behind getting this film uh, in this cut made was a toxic fandom yeah. uh, uh, on the internet being shit. I accept all of that. And, oh, it's so- <laughs> So it's so good, <laughs> and, and then uh, Darkseid does the standard sequel hook, like, "Oh, I'm going to come now." Yeah, but because they've destroyed the boxes, they have to fly there uh, anyway. Um, and, and then uh, the screen says epilogue, <laughs> and there's 40 more minutes of the film. <laughs> uh, we start getting a monologue from, "Oh, uh, yeah, Cyborg goes home and is listening to a tape recorder. His dad left him. Yeah, that that's all. Like, I I felt like I was your father twice over." And then that tape becomes like the backing for like Superman is back with Lois and Batman batting men. Flash gets to see his dad and is like, I've got a proper job. Yeah. He, he, he's, he's, he's got a job in a crime lab. Yeah. And, and, and Wonder Woman is wondering. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, oh, because earlier in the film, they do another Lord of the Rings thing where the, the Amazons have to set a fire beacon to let. The world of men know that Steppenwolf was coming, and so they, they fire a flaming arrow uh, thousands of kilometers to set a to set a temple on fire. One of them goes to a temple, blah blah. I mean, in, in in the epilogue, you see her kind of like back at the temple with like like with with, with the arrow again, and yeah. she's like looking out into the sun and all that stuff. And that's bad for your eyes. Uh, and then we get to the sequence. Oh, and then there's the the. The the building a hall of justice. Yeah. And then we get in, to, in, in like ruins of Wayne Manor. Yeah. And yeah. then we get to um the sequence that is uh, essentially yeah, all the end credit scene in, in a row. Yeah. We get the the the, the Lex Luthor Deathstroke one that was in the Whedon version is yeah. shown, but as originally intended, it's not about starting a league of their own with our women who play baseball. <laughs> uh it, it, um, Lex Luthor tells Deathstroke Batman's real name, right? Yeah, which is like that shifts it from being a sequel hook to like, oh, now I want like again, capitalism is bad, <laughs> but I want to see a Batfleck film with Joe Manganiello yeah. <laughs> as Deathstroke. But <laughs> they've yeah, um, and, and then we get uh, what are the other things? Yeah, I I this so much fucking stuff happens in the epilogue. I can't remember all uh, of it. The, then we get um. Another flash forward, it's in the future time, right, yeah. Batman is leading the Suicide Squad, we've already discussed this, uh, on the team is Jared Leto's Joker. and he, he does his fucking monologue. Famously, he does not say we live in a society. Yeah, the movie loses half a star. Um, and But it ends with Superman turning up. And, and he's evil. And he's evil. And it does, like, 
and then he wakes up and it was all a dream and i laughed at this point because it is the absolute uh ben affleck has made many mistakes in his life uh creative and personal and argo this is not a creative nor personal (laughs) boom Best picture. Best picture. Um, uh, and best screenplay, right? Yeah. Well, best adapted screenplay. Yeah, from yeah. the writer of Justice League. Yeah. The sole oh, credit oh, to right, writer right, on Zack yeah, Snyder's Chris Terrio, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, God. But then uh, uh, he does the perfect, I've just had a nightmare sitting up into shot. <laughs> and it's just like... Oh, and yeah, and, and like I, I, I do not like Ben Affleck, particularly in, in Batman vs. Superman. No. I, I think in that movie he is doing a good Bruce Wayne and a bad Batman performance. I think in in this one he's just like he's just like generally good throughout the whole movie, pretty much. Uh, and you can understand his thousand year, yard stare, yeah, because his art through this film is trying to make amends, mm. and you can see like that's how pained and low he is. And yeah, and, and there, actually a plot. Yeah, land. Yeah, and the, 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 there is a bunch of stuff that that like Batman vs Superman is getting at, but I don't think it achieves. Where like he's been Batman for twenty years and he's realized that like he's not made any fucking difference. Yeah. And, and like I think that this film does does it a lot better. Yeah, uh, and, and the thing that that is made clear that everyone had already worked out in his interaction with Jared Leto's Joker is that Jared Leto, Joker, and Harley Quinn killed Robin. Yeah, which is something that was hinted at in previous films, and we all got. Yeah. Um. And but then uh, he gets a visitor. It's the Martian Manhunter being like, "Oh, I I feel attached to this planet." Mm. Uh, I'd like to join your team and save the world. And, and Batman's like, "Cool." Yeah, and and Batman, uh, I think, very politely doesn't point out, "Hey, what's up? Your skin's uh, green, and you got like weird ridges on your head. Uh, are you like an alien or some shit?" Yeah, he, he's just like, he's just like, "Oh, cool. There's a there's a floating guy on my private lake. Uh, yeah, sure. You you can join my team, I guess." Yeah, and uh, oh, you're you're called the Martian Manhunter. Fine, great. Is, yeah. I mean, like, isn't it interesting that of his two names, which are, of course, the Martian Manhunter, and his real name is John Jones. J apostrophe O-N-N space J apostrophe O-N-N-Z. Yeah. Yeah. John Jones. Get it. Um, and, and then he flies towards the camera and the credits roll. Yeah. And four hours later, the, the sky outside is dark. It's five minutes longer than a brighter summer day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, this film is too long. It should not be a film. Yeah. Uh, it should not exist on several fronts. But the fact is it does exist, and uh, it's kind of good. <laughs> if I, yeah, I would be, yeah. And I think if I watched it an hour at a time, mm. yeah, the the its presentation of women is not great. There is still, like, I want to know what the end of Snyder's arc with questioning the godhead of these people was before we can decide how fashy it is. Yeah. And, but it is sound. Yeah, it, it, it's sound. It, it's sound. It's not. It's like you gave it three stars. Yeah, and I agree with that. But it is. I was so. I don't like. Yeah, I I was both like super ready to love this and super ready to hate this. Yeah, yeah, because like uh, I I have a tendency to like uh, uh just like take contrarian opinions, especially when I'm like arguing with people online. Yeah, and so every time I I'd see like a big Snyder fan talking about how great this movie is gonna be. I was like, no, fuck you, you're full of shit. Yeah. And then every time I see someone talk about how, like, Zack Snyder is, like, evil, and this is going to be, like, the worst movie ever made, and, like, can you believe he's doing it in 4 free? What a, what a pretentious, like, piece of shit. Yeah. I was like, no, this movie's going to actually rule. And it's, like, it's exactly in the middle of it. There's some stuff that rules super fucking hard. Yeah. There's some stuff that is really boring. Yeah. But, like, 
I think the stuff that rules outweighs the stuff that is boring. And, and all the stuff that is boring is boring largely because it's just too much in this film. Yeah. As opposed to like, it's not scenes from the test where you're like, why film this at all? Yeah. Why allow human eyes to see this? <laughs> It is, it, it's, it's overstuffed and distended. Yeah. And it, 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 there, it, it does not, it, it has issues with point of view that I think being presented in a TV format would solve in that, like, there is a cut of this film where Flash is the protagonist. There's a cut of this film where Cyborg is yeah. the protagonist. There's a cut of this film where Batman is the protagonist. Um, and, and trying to kind of layer all those things together and as well as giving Aquaman and Wonder Woman their own scenes and mini art, it just ends up feeling like uh, uh, slightly out of control. And there's not enough thematically unifying it that it, that it kind of works, especially like the thing you realize that the Avengers has working for it most of all is that they are all in the same room by like the half hour mark yeah maybe the 40 minute mark and in this it is the two and a half hour mark you know could have what all of the avengers by the time the team is teamed up yeah the weed cut opens with a scene of batman fighting a parademon after the superman thing in the status montage is batman fighting a parademon and talking to holt mcaloney i mean in, in this one uh like Ben Affleck is not in the Batman suit until like two hours in, pretty pretty much. Yeah, yeah. but it is and like the thing I want to push back again. It's just the amount of like, oh, it's too long, and it's like, yes, it is too long, and like the amount of like snark tweeting, and it is like this, uh, and this film where uh, Zack Snyder stepped away from this film under under unbearably tragic circumstances, yeah, and. and was given an opportunity through not great means because toxic fandom is three bad things yeah it's toxic it's fans and it's dumb yeah and, and like there's already the like the R, fans are calling for the r-rated cut of mrs doubtfire and it's like no but i think this is a very specific case within a very broken uh system of capitalism and entertainment yeah where where someone who took the opportunity to finish their film was taken away from them under but multiple and tragic reasons of varying degrees of tragedy and being given an opportunity to, to, to finish it and to show his intention. And like, this cost like $50 million. It was like 70, I think. Uh, like, yeah. uh, uh, and it, it was on top sh- of the 300. Yeah. It, it was sure. <laughs> I mean, okay. Yeah. So, so the, the, this, this is now the most expensive movie ever made by about $70 million. <laughs> Uh, and most of that was finishing special effects yeah. shot. Um, but it, it it's up for streaming for people who want to see it. It was shown once in one cinema. It's not taking up cinemas from other films. And like money made from it is going to like suicide prevention charities. Yeah. And it's not, and I don't, I think a lot of people won't like it. I think we yeah. are also in a position of, you know, when you watch enough of a thing, when you love a thing enough, in this case, film, um, you, you, you're, you're chasing the initial high. And so that means you need harsher and deeper and danker stuff. And I think this is very much the equivalent of like, the, this is the like fantasy action, sci, fantasy sci-fi action shit that you can only buy from a man in a grubby coat. <laughs> and like for you and me, people who enjoy that shit, fuck yeah. yeah. But I don't like, I can't think of any regular humans who would, who would like it. And my problem is, is that a lot of those people seem to be like, well, I've got to see it anyway, and I don't like it. And it's like, so don't. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there being like, ah, 
this film is bad. I think this film is going to be bad. And then watching and being like, oh, this is bad. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm aware that that is me kind of tearing apart the premise of this whole podcast. Though. Maybe. Do you want to hear a positive review? Yeah, sure. Okay. This is a um, short review. I think this covers quite a lot. Five stars. It's on Letterboxd by uh, Dan, who has already seen it more than once. This is a review of his second viewing. One sentence. One of the things I love the most about this is how Batman looks like a bozo in almost every action scene. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the rest of the five-star reviews are people being like, they told us it didn't exist. Right, yeah. And now now we damn got it. And it's like, like, oh, no. Hashtag Crystal the Snyderverse. Adapt them into comics. Uh, and I want to be clear, in a just world, the $370 million that went towards this film would be feeding the hungry and building affordable or free housing. And, like, we wouldn't, you know, like, yep. it's problematic, Fave. So Dan, uh, his avatar is um, Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. Okay. Top four films. Before Sunrise? No. Ah. Top four films. One should be obvious. Um Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League. Dang. Another one should be obvious. Tenet. That's right. I did the gesture again. Another one is another one is another film kind of famously redeemed uh, by a director's cut. Uh, after being taken out of the hands of its original director. About a, the power of a destructive alien. Okay. It, feel, feel, like, it feels like... I... 90s film. 1992. Was this Alien Resurrection? <laughs> alien Cubed? Yeah, and yeah. then um, easily my favorite 11th entry in a film franchise. 13th, if you count the Ewoks films. <laughs> Is it Rise of Skywalker? No, The Last Jedi. Okay, good. So just as a, as a final thought, just so we're clear to the audience, watch Greed. Don't watch Justice League unless you want to spend three and a half hours waiting for to watch... Uh, people's bones and skin be reformed while the flash runs faster than light yeah because if that sounds appealing to you watch it if it doesn't do not i was so ready to just dunk on that film yeah i i I was i was expecting that like especially during during, like first couple scenes i was like expecting that like yeah i'm not gonna like this yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna be throwing nothing but zingers yeah and yeah, I mean, like, it just started to fucking work for me. And there is, and like, it is long, but every half hour there is an action beat that is good, competent, and kicks ass. Yeah. Like, Dax Snyder, I'm sorry, but also they shouldn't have let you <laughs> had a franchise after Man of Steel. And I, yeah. So what are we watching <laughs> next week, Finn? Okay, so next week we are watching... Howard Hawke's 1959 Western, starring John Wayne and Dean Martin, is Rio Bravo. I'm excited to start the unofficial miniseries across the uh, uh, across this show of me not getting why people like John Wayne. I do not confine, find him compelling. And with that, we are watching uh, John Favreau's 2011 masterpiece, Cowboys and Aliens. From the director of Zara. <laughs> Sorry, God. Zathura. Zathura. From the director of Zathura, Cowboys vs. Aliens. From the director of Zathura and Swingers. It was <laughs> Cowboys and Aliens. No, not Swingers. Swingers was directed by Doug Lehman. He directed and made the sequel. He just like he wrote, wrote, wrote and started in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with, with Vincent Vaughn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Doing, doing Cowboys and Aliens. I've heard that movie's really boring. Yeah, uh, but... <laughs> oh, it is Doug Liman. Okay. I kind of think I know so little about Cowboys vs. Aliens, but here is my hope going into it. I hope that we now live in a world of wacky Daniel Craig, where he's like doing accents and flipping out. I hope that we can see early beginnings of that. Yeah. Here's my thing about that movie. Uh, it's got Sam Rockwell in it. Yeah. It's got Paul Dano in it. Yeah. It's got Harrison Ford in it. Yeah. Uh... Sounds pretty good. So where can people find you online, Finn? Uh, who cares? You can find the show on Twitter at ShiteSoundPod, or you can email us at uh, ShiteSoundPod at gmail.com. Check out our website at ShiteAndSound.com. You can find me on all your various socialized medias as at YouthAlives, and you can sign up for my newsletter, The Dean's List, bit.ly slash YouthAlives. Um, our theme song is The Nux by Kazan Blam. Check them out on Bandcamp. Oh, if you like the show, and uh, if you've gotten this far into what I think is going to be two and a bit hours, yeah. it's, I want you to know, just from where we are, our recording for this episode has been shorter than either of the films discussed. Um, why not like and subscribe, tell your friends, we don't got a marketing budget, and it'd be nice to, to share the love. I do mean it. Movies are good. Even Snyder ones. Go, Go watch them. is very much a Tony Soprano and that he's a lumbering violent man. And he's obsessed with Gabagool. <laughs> no, uh, having recently watched the YouTube uh, compilation of all Sopranos yeah. mentions of Gabagool, Gabagool uh, it's not, he does not mention right, it that right often. Up. That video is like five minutes long <laughs> when the video I watched after it, all death scenes in the <laughs> Sopranos is nearly an hour. And just watching and be like, well, how, 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 how long's the video of all the times that John Cooper Clark's Evidently Chicken Town plays in The Sopranos? How long's that video? Um, uh, YouTube flags that for content ID. So, no. uh, whenever I go to find it, it's, you know, you can't watch this because, uh, JCC Corp, uh, does not want the world to see me. Because it, I don't think, it, 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 it's, it's called Heroin Poets Limited. <laughs>